Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Tellus, your host. This is being brought to you live and recorded live from Las Vegas, from a secret location on June 5th at 10.38 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And the World Series Week 1 is in the books. We have a lot of World Series of Poker topics tonight. If you're not interested in the World Series of Poker and the drama it always brings, then you probably won't like this episode of the show because that is the vast majority of this show. Also, I do not have the usual time to edit it like I do after the show. So if it sounds a little less polished than usual, not that it's all that polished, but if it sounds a little less polished than usual when you listen in the archives, that is why. Anyway, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be back at the World Series of Poker. I had only played one event in the past three years, which was the main event in 2021. But this is the first time I'm playing preliminary events since 2019. And we're going to get into all of my experiences and everything else that's been happening at the World Series of Poker. And you'll get my impression, my personal impression about the new venue. And you know I'll be brutally honest about it, the good and the bad. And that'll all be tonight. What about the free roll? Well, I'd love to tell you about the free roll, but... There is no free roll tonight. First of all, it's kind of late. It's 10.40 Pacific time. Most people are just not around for this live show because it is late in many, many places. It is late in most of the U.S. It is late in Europe. I guess it's early in Europe, but still not really a good time for them. So honestly, there's not many people who can really make this free roll, but that's not the reason I canceled it. It actually is having some technical difficulties involving the site certificate. That's why if you tried to go there, you probably got some kind of error message about the site not being secure. That has to do with certificate. It hasn't been hacked or anything. But because a number of people were getting that message and were unable to get past it, I decided to just cancel the whole free roll this week. And we will hold the money over for the next show, which right now is scheduled for June 15th at around 830 Pacific Daylight Time. So that will be 10 days from now. We will cover week two and three during that. And uh, we have a call coming in here. I'll, I'll throw this call on here, even though I don't usually throw the call on at this time when doing the intro. But uh, welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Hello. That's a quality phone call. Thank you. I'm glad I took it. Anyway, no free roll to talk about this week. That'll save a little time in the intro. If you want to call the show like that other individual just did, but please don't just call and hang up on me. The phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. If you are listening for the first time because you found this site because you saw me around the World Series of Poker wearing a Poker Fraud Alert hat, not a new hat, but an old hat, but if you saw me wearing the 2014 hat and you asked me about Poker Fraud Alert, or if you just saw it and wanted to see what it was, then welcome. And I hope you enjoy this show. In fact, I talked about this show at one of the events, and people were pretty astounded at the length of the show. They couldn't believe that I do six to eight hours each week, which I do. They can't believe I do it all in one sitting, which I do. They can't believe I do it often with no co-hosts or co-hosts for only a little bit of time, which I do. And they can't believe that I do this for free, which I do. 
<laughs> These were all things they were surprised about at the World Series when I discussed the site and the topic came up because I'm wearing a hat and they ask about it and I tell them. So anyway, if you're one of the new people here, welcome. And I hope you stick around and listen to this show going forward. But if you want to call tonight, listening live, 775-372-8355. That is also our text number. You can text me before, after, or during the show anytime. And I will respond to you. Now, someone's saying that the sound is terrible. That's scaring me. Because uh, I'm not at home. So I'm broadcasting from a secret location, as I mentioned. And I want to make sure you guys can hear this okay. So in the chat room, which I just entered... There's a chat room, by the way. You can enter it if you have a Poker Fraud Alert form account validated and good standing. You can go in and chat during the live show. If it's not live, don't bother because there's nobody nobody in there. But uh, if you're listening live and you're hearing the sound quality, please tell me if it's good, okay, terrible, so I can feel better or worse about this matter. Because I am broadcasting from a location that the internet may not be great. Okay, Dive Bar Dave says it's good. Thank you, Dive Bar Dave. We will continue forward. We have a call to listen line, which is the number you can call and listen. In fact, I got a text from that caller who hung up on me and said that he was trying to call the call to listen line, which is a common mistake. I ingrain in your head every week 775-FRAUD-55 to where people just naturally dial it, even though they're meaning to call the call to listen line. This has happened many times. So I understand. But the call to listen line, if you want to call it, 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736 to listen. There's also the alternate number, 641-741-1095. 641-741-1095 is the alternate number to the call to listen line. It's very simple. You just call up and you listen. And it does not require a smartphone, does not require a data plan or a computer or internet access or even a very good connection. All you need is a phone that can dial the U.S., and it will never buffer, and it'll never freeze. It'll just play. It'll just work. It's a beautiful thing. And if you can call the U.S. for free, then it will be a free call for you, unless you have T-Mobile, which will charge you one cent a minute because they're very greedy, and they won't give me any of that. If they gave me some of it, then I wouldn't be that opposed to it, but they give me nothing. 605-313-0736, the call to listen line. We have the Mount Charleston line, which is an alternate call-in number to the show, 702-430-1808. I have not visited it yet, but it is located on Mount Charleston in a cabin near the top of the mountain, and I do plan on going there and visiting. Mount Charleston is substantially cooler than Vegas, so if Vegas is getting you down because it's so hot right now and you want to go somewhere that has a high in the 70s, you can do it. You just have to drive like 40 minutes. And you'll be in a mountain setting that looks nothing like Las Vegas. You'll say, I cannot believe Vegas is 40 minutes away from here. But it is. That's Mount Charleston, always about 30 degrees cooler than Las Vegas is at the moment. That's a nice place to visit in the summer. Someone texted me that they plan to come out here next week and go to Mount Charleston. So, yeah, that's a place I recommend to visit. Now, if you live somewhere that has a lot of mountainous scenery, then it won't be that exciting for you. But if you don't then, yeah, it's something you should visit, something for a change if you want to get into different scenery and kind of a different scene. Okay, so I will give you the agenda, and then we will get going. I have another hat update, and I will give that at the beginning of the show. I have an update, a big update, actually, regarding the PayPal case. We have a result 
regarding PayPal's attempt to compel arbitration instead of a court case. So I will tell you whether that was granted or whether it was denied. And I will read you some of the decision. I actually have the decision right in front of me here, so I will read you parts of it. Then we will talk all about the World Series. Now, what's the most important thing that has happened at the World Series so far? Well, for me, it's the fact that I went there and played two events. may not be for you, but for me it is, and it's my show. So guess what? That'll be the top subject. That'll be the first topic we do is my return to the World Series, my play at the World Series, and my impression of the World Series, because it's my show. And I care about that much more than uh, Scott Seaver winning a bracelet, which we're not even going to talk about, but I guess I just did talk about it. I actually like Scott Seaver better now. In past years, if I saw he won a bracelet, I'd kind of be like annoyed, thinking like I don't want to see him win. But I've actually uh, gotten to like Scott Seaver better, just from Twitter. Like, I, I went from not really caring for him, not hating him, but just not really caring for him to eh, thinking better of him. So I never thought he was a bad guy. Like he wasn't a scammer or anything. I just didn't like his attitude, but I don't know. I've softened over time on Scott Seaver. I've gotten to like him better. He did win a bracelet, but it's not one of our topics. But the other topics we will have include a major dealer fail in the big opening housewarming event where the World Series of Poker was delayed for an hour because of one dealer. I don't mean one table was delayed for an hour. I mean the whole event, the whole gigantic event was delayed for an hour. It was a disaster. Thankfully, I was not in that event. Christoph Vogelsang has angered the poker world. I'm sure if you're on poker Twitter, you know all about this. I mean, I've heard of people tanking before. I've heard of people playing slowly. But this guy takes it to a new extreme. This guy just tanks and tanks and tanks in spots that should be very quick decisions. And people were watching this on Poker Go and tearing their hair out. And his opponents were probably tearing their hair out. This is in the 25K Heads Up event. That's why it had a lot of viewers, because that's a pretty high-profile event. So I'll tell you what happened with Christoph Vogelsang and how I feel this should be handled. Phil Helmuth. He was going to enter the 100K High Roller event. He was trying to sell action to it at 30% markup. He did not sell very much action. He did not play the event, maybe because he didn't sell much action, but he's claiming... It's because he had diarrhea. <laughs> You've heard of rained out? This was uh, diarrhea out. He honestly claimed that he did not play the event because of diarrhea. I don't know if that's true, but that's what he's claiming. A Poker Fraudler forum member played the 08 event, and I was a little bit insulted that he didn't tell me beforehand and did not approach me if he saw me. I don't know if he saw me or not, but he did not come up to me. We didn't talk. I didn't even know he was there until he posted about it after he had gone home. However, I will say in this one case, I'm happy that he was being antisocial regarding me because it turned out, unbeknownst to him and everybody, he had COVID. So a Poker Fraud Alert member may have spread COVID at the 08 event. 
I kid you not. I'll tell you the story. Not his fault, by the way. But I will tell you why I believe he probably spread COVID to the 08 event. Lisa Vanderpump did the first shuffle up and deal at the World Series of Poker. And she used a live dog as a card protector. (laughs) Again, not a figurine of a dog. Not a stuffed animal. An actual live dog on the table as a card protector. And it wasn't a joke. It wasn't like a gimmick to get laughs. So we'll talk a bit about uh, Lisa Van- Vanderpump, what she was even doing there, and the whole dog thing, and whether the World Series should continue with this sort of thing. Kevmath is a listener to this show. Kevmath, whose real name is Kevin Mathers, is a very big asset to the poker community. He's also very well-liked. I don't know anybody that dislikes him. He's one of the best-liked people in poker. He does a lot of selfless things for people in poker regarding providing information. I mean, you look at his Twitter, and he is a resource. And I've talked about this before. I was saying he should operate the WSOP account before he was actually hired to do it. I was saying you should hire someone like Kevmath back when Seth Polanski and others were running it and had trouble sometimes holding back their temper and uh, sometimes gave wrong information. Like, I said, you really need someone like Kevmath running it, who is well-liked, who isn't easily offended, who isn't easily rattled, and just has all the info and is very good at putting it out there. So when they hired him, I thought, that was great. That's exactly what I said they should do. And he has been brought back every year since, which is the correct decision. And Kevmath has really done a lot of service for poker and I appreciate it and many others in poker appreciate it and he's very very approachable however even the greats have their off days Kevmath made a rare error on the WSB Twitter account and it caused some people to show back up late from a dinner break at the housewarming event uh oh don't worry Kevmath we forgive you But I must cover it. Just because you listen to this show, just because you're a nice guy, does not mean that you're going to get off of this one. I I do have to mention it, but I will be fair about it. The King's Lounge cashier situation is still a tremendous fail. It's absolutely terrible. I just experienced it personally last night, and it was just awful. It was awful in 2019 when I last played there. It was awful in 2018. It's been awful for a long time. And I'm not the only one saying that. Chris Fox Wallace wrote about this as well on Cards Chat, and I totally agree with him. It's it's a complete clusterfuck, and they just never fix it. And it really, really, really tilts the players in there. If you don't know what the King's Lounge is, that's the uh, high-limit room for cash games. So the, the cashier situation is a gigantic mess, and every year they have this, and it just doesn't get any better. So I'll tell you about that again. I'll complain about it once again. Maybe one year they'll get it right. Then we shall move on away from the World Series with two non-World Series topics. GG Poker had a women's championship event. Very nice. You know, some people said that GG Poker is misogynistic because they hired Dan Bilzerian and 
some people said he's not respectful towards women, blah, 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 blah. And I didn't care too much about that. I mean, we'd covered it on this show, and I understood the point people were trying to make, but they kind of needed to get over it. I, I felt that was very much overblown. But anyway, they've been trying half-heartedly to show that they do care about women in poker. And someone they hired, a woman named uh, Davia Byrne, to basically do uh, outreach to, to women in poker, Th- these were all gestures to attempt to smooth over the bad blood that some had with them over the Bilzerian situation. So they had a women's championship event. Okay, very nice. Except uh, one little problem with the women's championship event. Mostly men entered it. <laughs> Including one of GG Poker's own male pros. <laughs> And they were allowed to. It wasn't that people snuck in there with fake female accounts. No. Men were allowed to enter and did. What a fail. So we'll talk about that. Finally, you know, I was playing at the World Series of Poker and the topic of COVID came up. I didn't bring it up. Someone else brought it up. But there was very poor understanding of COVID at the table there. Like, like, no one understood it. Well, even smart people, even some of the really good players and smart people who are smart outside of poker, there's this very poor understanding of COVID and how COVID stands today. So in honor of that conversation I had, I'm going to go through a number of statements, not necessarily made at that table, but a number of statements that I've heard people make in recent times regarding COVID. And I will tell you, true or false. And almost all of these stories are either completely true or statements. Almost all these statements are either true or false completely. A few of them are mostly true or mostly false, but most are just absolutely true, absolutely false. And it will surprise some of you. Maybe somewhat not because you've listened to the show before, but a lot of misconceptions about COVID. And I want to clear this up, but I'm going to do COVID danger at the World Series as the focus here, not just COVID in general. So if you're thinking of coming out here in the next month and a half, you will know what your true danger is and isn't. And of course, I can't know for sure. Nobody knows for sure. But from everything I have learned, I will let you know. That is our show for the evening. Thank you very much. Good night. Oh, wait. We haven't done the show yet. Crap. All right. All right. right. Fine. We'll start. So first, a hat update. Do I have hats? No. Did I bring any hats with me at the World Series? No. Have the hats been made yet? No. Have I done anything in the past week involving the hats? No. Wait, wait, wait. No, no. Yeah, I'm sorry, sorry. Have I done anything involving the hats? Yes. I got so used to saying no, I just reflexively said no. So I've received some sample hats in the mail... Uh, the sample hats actually don't have the logo on them, so that doesn't really help me very much, but it helped a little bit, like as far as the hat itself. And I'm going to discuss with Trey Daruski what I like about the samples, what I don't. I meant to do this before, but I got preoccupied with the World Series stuff, so that's where it stands. And uh, I'm hoping to have them sometime in mid-June. That's what we're targeting right now. I will not have them with me at any point during this World Series trip. I will leave the World Series 
at some point and go back to my family, as I do. I don't spend the entire seven weeks out here anymore. I haven't in a long time since I've had my own family. So what I do is I go back and forth. So when I leave this particular trip, then sometime between then and when I come back, I hope to have the hats. So hopefully on my next World Series trip, which I'll tell you about uh, a little bit later, then I will have the hats for you if you're at the World Series at that time. If you're not at the World Series at that time, I will mail it to you. But we still don't have them yet, so don't send me addresses or anything. I know it's going a bit slower than I was hoping, but they will be made. I promise you that. That's where it stands right now with the hats. I don't want to do a long hat segment every time. I don't want the hat segment to be longer than a lot of poker shows are. There's like 25-minute poker shows out there, and we're doing like a 25 minutes on hats. I don't want to do that. Just want to give you the quick hat update there that uh, I've gotten some samples, and I'm evaluating them. So I want them to be good. And I, I like the ones we have presently. I really like the ones we have presently that were from 2014. If we could just make duplicates of all that, that would be great. So I want something along those lines. And I don't want to make it worse. I don't want to give you something that is worse than I gave eight years ago. I want it to at least be as good. I want it to be quality hats. Even though it's free, I want it to be quality. Now I want to give you another update, and that is about the PayPal case. On May 26th, Eric Benzamokin and his co-counsel took their motion to court to deny PayPal's ability to compel arbitration. This is a class action lawsuit against PayPal over them just outright stealing people's money over alleged violations of terms of service. And it's just outright stealing. PayPal says, hey, you violated our terms. So rather than just kicking you off the platform and giving you your money, which is what they should do, they kick you off and take all your money. They fine you, and they have no authority to fine you. It's insane. And they fine you at $2,500 per incident, which means basically everybody's going to have all their money taken. Because even if you have more than 2500 on there, they'll say, oh, you violated uh, 100 times. That's 250000 Basically, everybody ends up with nothing. It's just PayPal outright stealing. And Eric and his co-counsel with lead... L- Lead plaintiff Lena Evans, who is a poker player, are taking PayPal to court in this uh, class action suit. However, as I've mentioned before, PayPal says that they want to compel arbitration because they do have it in their user agreement that if there's any dispute arising from the usage of the PayPal service, that this must be done via arbitration rather than the court system. So what Eric and the other attorneys were attempting to do here was get the court to disallow that, to say, you may have made people agree to arbitration, but that basically PayPal has all the power here. That if you don't accept PayPal, your business online is severely handicapped So basically, PayPal has the full control of all the terms, and you basically have to agree with whatever they say, and then that would give them a lot more power to screw you if they knew that they would only be taken to arbitration rather than court. And I actually agree with what Eric is trying to do, 
from this standpoint. Forget the whole case. Of course, I agree with Eric's point that PayPal is stealing. In fact, I'm the one who brought it to him in the first place. But I also agree with this arbitration thing. I really, really hate when companies bury the compelling of arbitration into their terms of service. Because the reason they're doing that is they want to be able to screw you and not have to go to court. It takes away your right to go to court. And if it were something like uh, when you walk into McDonald's, there's a big sign saying if any dispute arises from your time here in McDonald's, uh, you, you agree to arbitration. Well, that would be a bit more reasonable because there's so many different places to eat out there, even so many other fast food places. So you could walk back out and say, you know what? I don't like this. I want to eat somewhere where I do have the right to sue them. So I will walk back out and not order anything from McDonald's. That would be completely fine. But when it's something like PayPal, which is a virtual monopoly, and keep in mind Venmo they own too, it's a virtual monopoly involving payment. If you don't accept PayPal, then it's really going to hurt you from the standpoint of e-commerce. That gives them all the power in making these demands. So it's not just like walking away and saying, oh, I just won't use PayPal then, no problem. Well, but that's going to really hurt you. So it shouldn't be that simple. It shouldn't be that simple for companies that have complete control over a certain market to always compel arbitration when you use them. Because then you have two very lousy options. Either not use them and be severely handicapped business-wise, or use them and know you can't sue them. So I don't think that's fair. That's very unfair to consumers. That's an abuse of the whole arbitration process. The compelling of arbitration is really more appropriate when you're dealing with a situation where you don't want huge legal fees being run up between two parties doing business if anything goes wrong. So let's say someone wanted to advertise on Poker Fraud Alert. Let's say a small company wanted to advertise on Poker Fraud Alert. And let's say I said, okay, you can advertise here, but I want you to agree that if we have any dispute arising over your advertising here, that we will agree to arbitration. And that would be reasonable because I'm an individual, and this would be a small business probably run by an individual, and we would both not want huge legal fees running up if one of us were to have a dispute with each other. So it's basically agreeing in advance that we're not going to run up each other's legal fees if we have a dispute. So that's fine. And if the person didn't like it, they could say, okay, well, I won't advertise with you. And I would say, okay, fine. I've never actually done this. I haven't compelled arbitration to anyone. But I'm saying that would be a reasonable case where it could be done. But huge companies like PayPal, where you don't have much other choice, with them putting it in their agreement, where it's either just don't use them or agree you can't sue them. I, it's really crappy. It's really abusing the whole spirit of agreeing to arbitration. So that, in non-legal terms, is basically the argument that Eric and the other attorneys were raising here, trying to get U.S. District Court in the Northern District of California to recognize and tell PayPal, you know what? This isn't fair. We're not going to compel arbitration. This is going to be heard in court. So the hearing for this, and only this, was on May 26th. And keep in mind, 
this did not deal with any other facts of the case. So they weren't discussing whether PayPal was stealing from people and PayPal wasn't justifying why they were taking that money. That is for a different time. This was a single topic motion, which was about arbitration. Will they be allowed to compel arbitration or will they be denied the ability to compel arbitration? Well, I will end the suspense now. PayPal has won the right to compel arbitration. That's not good news, obviously. It's not what I was hoping. But sometimes that's the way the court goes. I will admit that Eric and the co-counsel were fighting an uphill battle here. Because when it's all said and done, every single PayPal user has agreed when they signed up, even if they don't realize they agreed, they have agreed via the terms of service to handle any disputes in arbitration. So this is something where Eric and the other attorneys have to go to court and say, wait, 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 they agreed, but here's why you should invalidate the agreement. And that's always hard in court to do. When you concede that you've agreed to something and then you want it overturned, it's always much tougher if you're on that end of the argument. So I was a little concerned that this was not going to work, as was Eric, as I'm sure the other attorneys were. But of course, this is something that I feel is just, not the decision, but what they were attempting to do, and of course, something they should try. It is very much to PayPal's advantage to have this arbitration agreement. PayPal argues that its user agreement contains an arbitration agreement and class action waiver that covers all the claims asserted in this lawsuit, says this decision document I'm reading from, from the U.S. District of Northern California in federal court. Plaintiffs oppose the motion to compel. The court previously found this motion appropriate for disposition without oral argument and vacated the hearing. For the following arguments, the court grants the motion to compel arbitration and dismisses this action without prejudice to filing a later action to confirm or vacate the arbitration award. So what this means here is that this is a dismissed case at the moment, but it's dismissed without prejudice, meaning it can be revived if they end up uh, winning something in arbitration, then the court can enforce that award. And it... Similarly, PayPal can let them know if uh, the whole thing was vacated and they lost an arbitration. So basically, what they're saying here is this isn't going to be heard in court, and the case for now is dismissed, and all we want to hear from you now is what happens in arbitration. So this whole decision is like nine pages, and it would not make very exciting radio to read a nine-page decision full of legalese about arbitration and previous cases, etc., etc. I will read you some parts. For example, this is what it says in the terms of service for PayPal. You and PayPal each agree that any and all disputes or claims that have arisen or may arise between you and PayPal, including with limita- without limitation, federal and state statutory claims, common law claims, and those based in contract, tort, fraud, misrepresentation, misrepresentation, or any other legal theory shall be resolved exclusively through final and binding arbitration rather than in court, 
except that you may assert claims in small claims court if your claims qualify and so long as the matter remains in such court and advances only on an individual non-class basis. This agreement to arbitrate is intended to be broadly interpreted. The Federal Arbitration Act governs the interpretation and enforcement of this agreement to arbitrate. So this is in the terms that everybody signs up for on PayPal, and, and you can read. It's offered to you to read. And it's basically saying all you can do is take them to small claims court or arbitrate. But if ever you want to take it beyond small claims court, that, that you can't do that. You can't do it. It has to stay in small claims court. And furthermore, that uh, there can't be any kind of class action suit. This would only be an individual matter in small claims court is all you're allowed to do. Also, there's a class action waiver that says you and PayPal agree that each of us may bring claims against the other only on an individual basis and not as a plaintiff or class member in any purported class or representative action or proceeding. Under both you and PayPal agree otherwise, unless both you and PayPal agree otherwise, the arbitrator may not consolidate or join more than one person or party's claims and may not otherwise preside over any form of consolidated representative or class proceeding. Also, the arbitrators may award relief only in favor of the individual party seeking relief and only to the extent necessary to provide relief necessitated by that party's individual claims. Any relief awarded cannot affect other PayPal customers. Not very good, huh? I don't like that at all. I don't like that term one bit. That's worse than the first term. This is basically saying there's no way you guys can get together as a class and sue us. So obviously there's not a lot of damages one individual is going to have with PayPal. I mean, yeah, sure, the bigger plaintiffs here got screwed out of over 100K, but 100K is peanuts to PayPal. They're worried about many millions. That's what they don't want to lose. And I don't believe there's a single person who even lost 1 million. So PayPal, by requiring each person to take their own action and only to do it through an arbitrator, they really are covered pretty well regarding not losing any big lawsuit over their shady actions. Think about it. There's really no way to sue them for a lot of money and win if these two hold up here. The whole reason class action lawsuits exist, and I think they need some reform, by the way, class action lawsuits, but I do believe in the concept of class action lawsuits because this allows a large group of people to be represented by a law firm who were screwed out of an amount of money that normally they wouldn't bother suing for or just don't have the means to sue for or wouldn't be worth suing for because the attorney's fees would be higher than the award they'd get. So even if you're screwed out of like a thousand bucks, other than the small claims court, you're not going to take someone to court for a thousand bucks. But like, think of a situation where people are screwed, up, screwed out of like a hundred dollars each, but like a massive number of people. Well, that's very advantageous to the company doing it because they know that barely anyone's going to take them to court for it. So they'll get away with it. So class action lawsuits allow all these people who got screwed in the same way to combine and sue them together. And while I do think the process needs some reform, which I won't get into, I think this is a great idea. It's a great legal concept. And here PayPal is saying, nope, you can't do it. You will not do this if you use PayPal. You can't do it. Ha ha ha. 
we can screw all of you together and you cannot get together and sue us for it. That's what you agree to when you use PayPal. And by the way, it can't be in court either. It has to be with an arbitrator. That's pretty ugly, huh? Especially considering what they ended up doing. This isn't just like theoretical, like, oh, they may screw you. No, they did screw people. We saw it. We saw it with Chris Moneymaker. We saw it with Lena Evans. We saw it with tons of people. So that was actually quoted in the decision. And then it says in the decision on page four, plaintiffs filed this lawsuit on January 13th, 2022. Plaintiffs assert claims for conversion, civil violations of, of the Federal RICO Act, violations of the Electronic Funds Transfer Act, breach of written contract, brief of fiduciary, breach of fiduciary duty, violation of California Business and Professions Code, unjust enrichment, declaratory relief, and accounting. Plaintiffs seek to represent a class of all PayPal users who had their funds seized from their accounts by PayPal based on a purported breach of PayPal's acceptable use policy. Yeah, sounds good to me, right? The court granted PayPal's motion to relate this case to Chang versus PayPal. On that, on the same day that plaintiffs filed this case, the court granted PayPal's motion to compel arbitration in that Chang case. The court found that arbitration provision in PayPal's user agreement applied to the dispute over PayPal's liquidated damages policy and that arbitration provision was valid and enforceable under Delaware law. That's where they're based. The court compelled arbitration and dismissed the case without prejudice to filing a later action to confirm or vacate the arbitration award, just like here. PayPal heavily relies on Chang in this motion. Plaintiffs do not address Chang. Chang is referring to the case, not the person. Then it says, for the legal standard, under the Federal Arbitration Act, arbitration agreements shall be valid, irrevocable, and enforceable, save upon such grounds exists at law or in equity for the revocation of, of any contract. As a, matter of, as a matter of federal law, any doubts concerning the scope of arbitratable issues should be resolved in favor of arbitration. And PayPal asserts that Delaware law governs because Delaware is actually listed as the uh, jurisdiction in the user agreement. It says, you agree that the laws of the state of Delaware, without regards to principles of conflicts of laws, will govern this user agreement and any claim or dispute that has arisen or may arise between you and PayPal. Plaintiffs assert that Delaware choice of law provision is unenforceable because Delaware has no substantive relationship to the parties or the transactions at issue here. I agree. I mean, PayPal is really mostly in uh, Northern California. I don't even know what this Delaware part is. It's probably uh, games where it's uh, favorable to them to be a Delaware corporation. I've seen a lot of other Delaware corporations. I've never really looked into it, but I assume there's some reason to their advantage to be a Delaware corporation. So that's why the plaintiffs are saying, no, this should not be Delaware. But the court agrees with PayPal that the Delaware choice of law provision is enforceable. This is first the Federal Arbitration Act, which plaintiffs recognize governs the user agreement, allows parties to an arbitration contract considerable latitude to choose what law governs some or all of its provisions, including enforceability of a class arbitration waiver. Second, and contrary to plaintiff's argument otherwise, even if the court were to apply a California choice of law analysis, notwithstanding the choice of law provision, that PayPal is incorporated in Delaware creates a substantial relationship between this dispute and the parties and the transactions at issue would lead to applying Delaware law. So basically they're saying, like it or not, they're a Delaware corporation, so that's what we're going by. Then in the discussion portion on 
page number six. It says the court finds that the answer to the question whether the arbitration agreement covers the dispute is yes. The arbitration agreement states that any and all disputes or claims that have arisen or may arise between plaintiffs and PayPal, and then they you know, read again what I read you earlier, the lawsuit is a dispute that has arisen between plaintiffs and PayPal and includes both federal and state statutory claims. Plaintiffs do not dispute these points. The only ar- argument they make against the coverage of the arbitration provision is that PayPal has not met its burden to show that plaintiffs actually consented to the agreement. Plaintiffs are correct that PayPal bears that burden, but the court finds that PayPal has met it. Declarations detailing a customer sign-up process that includes assenting to an arbitration agreement, along with allegations that plaintiffs open such accounts, are sufficient to meet a Movent's initial burden to show assent to arbitration. PayPal has provided a declaration describing the process through which each PayPal plaintiff signed up for their account. Plaintiffs do not dispute the process shown in the declarations, which includes a checkbox manifesting assent to the user agreement that included the arbitration provision. PayPal has thus met its burden to show the plaintiffs entered into the arbitration agreements. So you see what they're saying there, that basically people checked the box and said, yes, I agree, so that's good enough for us. So the court's saying. B, the arbitration to... B, the agreement to arbitrate is valid and enforceable. The remainder of the party's dispute concerns whether the arbitration agreement is valid and enforceable. Plaintiffs make several arguments against enforcement of the provision. The court analyzes these arguments in the context context of unconscionability under Delaware law. A contract provision is unconscionable under Delaware law only if, quote, no man in his senses and not under delusion would make it on the one hand and and no honest or fair man would accept it on the other. Ignoring the dated language of the Delaware tests, this formulation has been divided into procedural unconscionability, the lack of meaningful choice, and and substantive unconscionability, unreasonably favorable arbitration terms to one party. It is the plaintiff's burden to prove unconscionability. Plaintiffs argue that the arbitration agreement is unconscionable fit in both categories, but none of the arguments are convincing. Plaintiffs make multiple arguments that the arbitration agreement is procedurally unconscionable. Further, uh, first, plaintiffs argue that PayPal presents the u- user agreement as take it or leave it, for which PayPal has uni- unilateral control over the terms. That's true. But, quote, unequal bargaining power without more is, is insufficient to hold an arbitration agreement unconscionable. And then they quoted some previous case involving some other company. The case that plaintiffs cite in this context predates relevant Supreme Court precedent on arbitration agreements, most importantly AT&T Mobility versus Conception, and so is not persuasive authority. Second, plaintiffs appear to argue that the arbitration agreement is hidden within the user agreement. But under Delaware law, a party may assent to an agreement on the internet without reading its terms and still be bound on it if she is on notice that she is modifying her legal rights just as she may with a physical written contract. Plaintiffs were on notice that they were modifying their legal rights. They checked a box recognizing they were agreeing to the user agreement and clicked a separate box saying agree and create account. Because they were clearly on notice that their legal rights were being modified, whether they did or did not read the user agreement is irrelevant. Even if they did so, and they did open the user agreement, the first page indicated that the user, user agreement contained an arbitration agreement. The location of the arbitration agreement 
does not make arbitration agreement unconscionable. So basically they're saying, we don't think it was buried here. First of all, it could be buried. That's fine. It's up to the user to read everything. And second, we don't think it was buried anyway. It was near the beginning. Finally, the court finds it important to note that the plaintiffs could have opted out of the arbitration provision. Now, I don't understand that part. Maybe there's some way, but I'm not aware of this. I mean, (laughs) I've known about PayPal for over 20 years. I didn't know you can opt out of the arbitration provision. It says the court has previously looked favorably on the opt-out opportunity offered in PayPal's user agreement. Plaintiffs do not address the consequences of this opt-out provision. Plaintiffs have thus not shown that the arbitration agreement is procedurally unconscionable. As you see here, the court uh, wasn't very favorable about this at all. Sometimes I'll read decisions where there's a lot on one side that the court takes, but ultimately goes with the other side, sometimes on a technicality, sometimes because one major point fails that has to exist So, therefore, the judgment has to go the other way. But here the court seems pretty solid on its belief that this can be compelled. In short, they're saying the plaintiffs agreed to it. The plaintiffs knew they were agreeing to it. The arbitration provision wasn't buried that far, and even if it was, it doesn't matter. So, that's enough. And previous rulings, including one in January involving PayPal, support this as well. So this is going to arbitration, which is too bad. I think the fact that I had no idea that you could opt out of arbitration, I bet you don't know either. I bet nobody listening to this show ever opted out of arbitration on PayPal. So it's not like there's this big box saying, do you wish to opt out of arbitration? Yes, no. This is something you have to know you can do, and you have to really closely scrutinize the terms. And I've always been skeptical about terms that are buried in very, very long agreements that you find online. Because almost nobody reads those, even lawyers. How often do you think anybody reads one of those long user agreements when they sign up to some kind of service offered by a big company? Like almost never, right? I think the court has to acknowledge this, that if almost nobody reads it, even if they can read it, this is really, really prone to abuse. And it does need to be addressed. And I think one way it could be addressed is that certain major terms, ones that, as they say, modify your legal rights, are ones that need to be clearly displayed to you and you have to clearly agree to not just read this 20-page agreement or 50-page agreement and we modify your legal rights, so go through it. Because almost nobody will. And if there is any kind of opt-out provision, that should also be very clear, not just for arbitration. Otherwise, they can say, hey, look, we let anybody opt out who wants, but if nobody knows they can, if nobody gets that far reading, then it's not very useful. Then almost every user that ends up with a dispute will not have opted out. And that's a trick. That's a trick. This way they can walk into court and say, hey, look, they could have opted out and didn't. Well, yeah, well, I didn't know. Well, you could have known. You could have read the whole 20-page user agreement. Well, I didn't. Well, whose fault is that you didn't, huh? Yeah, but nobody does. Oh, nobody does. Well, but you could have, right? 
You chose not to. That was your conscious decision. You clicked, I agree, without reading everything. Now, whose fault is that? Like, you see how that happens. It's not fair. This violates what I call Druff's rule of fair business. And that is, you always need to provide the customer with something they expect. And if the vast majority of your customers don't expect it, then you have purposely hidden something from them or purposely tricked them, or you were incompetent in informing them. So just because you buried it in some terms doesn't mean that you're acting ethically. Everybody on both sides should know what they're getting into. I'm not saying the consumer is always right. Sometimes he's wrong. Sometimes the company's right. But everybody needs to understand what they're getting into. And I think the vast majority of people who have PayPal accounts, in fact, I would say almost everybody who has a PayPal account has no idea that they've agreed to resolve any dispute in arbitration or that they could opt out of this arbitration. I think almost nobody knows. And if that's the case, then there's something wrong with this whole process and it needs to be modified. In fact, this kind of came up, uh, well, something very similar, in fact, came up with that skills lawsuit that Mac Verstandig brought. Remember I talked about that with that hot 19-year-old from Vegas who somehow won like $50,000 on there and they seized from her? And there was that dude in Texas on that same game. They stiffed him out of a, a Porsche and then they also confiscated like 200 k from him. He was like the biggest winner in the site. Remember they sued and this ended up being forced arbitration? Very similar. And Mac tried to show how it wasn't easy to even see the terms and conditions link. The court wasn't impressed. The court said, nope, nope, we're satisfied that these users agreed to arbitration. But I guarantee not a single player on there. I wouldn't say I guarantee, but I think it's highly likely that not a single player on there knows that they've agreed to arbitration when they're playing that game. Like you sign up to an app to play a game, you're not reading their long terms of service. You're just not. Anyway, where do we go from here is the question. I shouldn't say we because I'm not part of it. Where does uh, Eric and the plaintiffs, where do they go from here? And I asked that. I didn't know the answer. Well, there's two ways they can go. They can either accept this and then go through the arbitration process. But again, uh, this doesn't allow class arbitration. So this would no longer be a class action, which severely hinders the whole thing. Or they could appeal this ruling. But this is a decision that they're going to have to make, and they're still deciding what to do. Unfortunately, this might end up being a case where a shady company gets away with bad actions, with unethical actions, with, which with actions really should be illegal simply because they buried certain terms into the user agreement. And when I say buried, I don't mean it's necessarily on page 18 of 20. I just mean it's a very long agreement nobody's going to read, and which almost nobody does read. And if that allows them to get away from just outright, get away with just outright stealing from people on a mass scale, this wasn't like a one-off thing that happened to somebody. This is going on on a mass scale. If this allows them to get away with this because they buried these terms in their user agreement, well, 
that says some very, very bad things about consumer rights in America. And I will go as far to say this. I have a lot of criticism for the way things are done in Europe. There's a lot of stuff that is done in European countries, a lot of law in European countries that I hate. And I'm glad I don't live in Europe for some of these reasons. However, when it comes to consumer protections, when it comes to consumer law, Europe is far superior to the U.S. I see it time and time again. Now, I don't even know if Europe has class action lawsuits. Maybe they don't even have this. But I do know when I see issues come up in Europe where a company is screwing people, it seems to end a lot better for the plaintiffs, for the consumers. There's a lot more laws protecting people from things big corporations do to really give it up to the ass to the consumer. And keep in mind, these are not all necessarily scams or thefts or frauds. For example, this has nothing to do with PayPal. But you know when you go on a cruise ship and they force you to pay these tips every day? I'm not talking about just tipping your room steward or the maitre d' or your waiter. I'm talking about forced tips that are supposed to be distributed to the entire staff on the ship. Like $17 per person per day. Of course, it adds up a lot. Well, I looked into this and I found that industry-wide, not just on one cruise ship, not just on one cruise line, but industry-wide, these are just pocketed by the cruise lines. These are not actually tips. They're pocketing it and using this to pay the maritime minimum wage that they have to pay these people anyway. And anything that runs over, then, yeah, sometimes they'll get that or sometimes they'll take the overage funds and uh, use that to give the employees health care, whatever. But the point is that a large portion of these, quote, tips are not really making it into the pockets of the employees. But even if they were, why should there be mandatory tips? That doesn't make any sense, right? Why is there a mandatory tip for going on a cruise ship? You should be able to tip who you want. That's the whole point of a tip. Well, in Europe, they agree. I don't know about all European countries, but I know the UK, for example, does not allow this. So if you have people from the UK on the cruise ship with you, a Norwegian or princess or carnival, whatever, they will not be forced to pay these tips. They actually are opted out of it automatically because the law prohibits it in those countries. And in order to do business with people in these countries, they have to follow the law of those countries, even if these cruise ships are not based in those countries. Isn't that interesting? So you cannot force people to prepay tips or service charges in the UK. That's nice. There's also a lot of privacy laws in Europe that uh, the U.S. does not have. So your data is being abused all over the place by big corporations in the U.S. They are constantly collecting info about you and trading it for marketing purposes and selling it to each other. And it's ending up in databases. And it can be looked up 
for various reasons, sometimes marketing reasons, or sometimes just because someone wants to look things up about you. It's not good, and it's very hard to opt out of all that, sometimes impossible. But the, U- the UK and a lot of Europe does not allow this. They have a lot stricter consumer data and privacy laws. So I give a thumbs up to Europe for this sort of thing. I think the U.S. could learn about some of this stuff or learn from some of this stuff. But I'm not the first one to bring this up, obviously. The reason this doesn't happen in the U.S. is because corporations hold tremendous influence upon U.S. policy. Because who donates to the politicians? So a lot of this stuff never changes. And you can't blame one party for it. Both parties do it. You can't say, all oh, those Republicans in bed with the corporations. No. Go look. Go look where the big money comes from on both sides. You'll see. It's, it's not on one side at all. <laughs> it's really, uh, no matter who you vote for, there's a lot of uh, corporate money going in to back these candidates. So it's pretty sad. It's not dead in the water, but this was a major decision in this case and unfortunately went the wrong way but it's one of these things that is very hard to win honestly especially because apparently they already ruled on a similar case in january so they just went back to it saying well the ching case we said this and we said that and yeah we're saying it again so that gets even harder when there's a relevant ruling just a few months prior that didn't go the way that you're hoping anyway good luck to Eric and all of the plaintiffs there, hopefully they can still make something out of this. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355, if you'd like to call or if you'd like to text me. We've gotten some texts here. From the 530, sound is good. Thank you. From the 314, the person who said that there was terrible sound quality, he said, much better after I refreshed. Thank you. Okay, good. From the person who accidentally called up the show and then hung up on me instead of the call to listen line, I was walking through a noisy casino and didn't really understand what was happening. What? Was he like a trance from the Buffalo slots or something? <laughs> Watching the Buffaloes run in front of him? And he's like, I must make a phone call. I must call 775-372-8355 as has been hammered in my head every week for 10 years. I don't quite understand that explanation. From the 773, wait, you were insulted when someone failed to take the time to say hi at the World Series. That's rich. We know exactly what, how you feel when you flew past us like you had diarrhea. Okay, I got to explain this now. A certain listener to the show. Here, I'm going to throw Matt the Rat on. He can hear this too. Hi, Matt. Hey. Yeah, hey, so let me explain this text here, and then we'll get to what you're sure. calling about. So this person, I won't say who it is, but the person who uh, texted here claims that I flew by him like I had diarrhea. Remember, Phil Helmuth had diarrhea, missed a big event. So this person believes I had diarrhea and flew by them, ran by them, and wouldn't stop to say hi, and that I should not be insulted that this person who had COVID at the 08 event didn't say hi to me. Well, it is true 
that this individual I saw twice for just seconds each time and didn't stop to say anything to him. But I have an excuse. The first time, I was late coming back from either a dinner break or a regular break. Something with something where I just barely had time to do what I was doing on the break. I don't know if it was the bathroom or getting dinner. But I was very concerned I was going to miss hands. And uh, so I'm sprinting over there. And just as I'm about to fling open the door to the Amazon room, there was uh, this guy here with his girlfriend, who also listens. And uh, they said hi to me. And I knew they were going to be there. We didn't have like an agreement to meet at that time or in that place. They just happened to be right there as I was running in. And they said hi. And I quick, <laughs> I don't know what I said, but I just uttered like two words and just ran in there because I'm trying to get to hands. I did text him afterwards and explained it, but uh, that's what happened there. Then the second time, you may say, well, how could this happen a second time to this guy? Well, the second time, uh, I think this was during the main event, some very big field event. Again, I think it was the main. And this was in uh, 2019. And this was when I was uh, still having uh, some issues, some residual issues from uh, the 2018 psychological problems. And uh, there was just this massive, massive, massive crowd where the Rio elevators were. And I just did not want to just be stuffed in with like a hundred people into that elevator. I just, because uh, I, I had a lot of weird things that happened to me in, in 2018 from these issues I suffered. And one of the things involved elevators. I had to kind of get myself be able to take elevators again. Nothing happened to me in, a, in an elevator. It was just like my mind kind of broke in 2018, as you guys know, from a physical issue. And uh, in 2019, I, I was still recovering from these things. So I was mostly better, but uh, there were still some remnants. And uh, when I saw this massive, massive crowd that was uh, going to just push into the elevator and I was like, no, I, I don't want to do this. And I wanted to go back up to my room, but I just, I was asking if there's any way I could take the stairs up. And, uh, they were telling me at security that I can't for whatever reason, the staircase is for staff only and for emergencies only. So apparently you can't just take the stairs up. So I was discussing this with security, and then, of all things, this guy happened to be there. The same guy I flew by the previous year. <laughs> and I think, like, like, he said hi to me, and I think he even said a few words on my behalf, which I appreciate. I seem to remember that. And then security uh, decided that they will allow me to take the stairs. And I, I wasn't staying on a very high floor, so I didn't have to go up, like, 20 floors. So, that, so we walked up the stairs together me and security and i thank them for that and uh that was the other time again i couldn't just sit there saying oh hey you're the guy I ran by last time hold on security i i know i want you to allow me to go up the stairs here but hold on while i greet this poker fraud alert member like i i couldn't have done that i was trying to get security to let me do it now since then i have been in uh very packed elevators and it's been fine i've since uh gotten a lot better here but that was why I couldn't say hi to him that time. So anyway, I did tell him uh, if he comes out again this World Series, I'll definitely make time to see him and, and his girlfriend if she's out too. 
and then we can finally uh, formally meet each other. So, Matt, uh, wh- what are you calling about? Are you out here yet? No, I get there on Tuesday. Tuesday afternoon. Okay. This Tuesday? Yes. Okay, okay. So I'll still be here. Yeah, and what... Uh, hey, can you add to that list um, event number 21, uh, the monster stack? Okay, I'll try to remember that, and uh, I will tell everybody out here that if you want to live-tweet how you're doing in an event. In fact, we have one guy in event number five at the housewarming event who's doing quite well. So you, you may want to take a look at the thread in the 2022 World Series of Poker Forum. We'll see how he does. But if anybody wants to live tweet their chips or anything else about an event you're playing at the World Series, you can, and you don't even need a Poker Fraud Alert Forum account. All you need to do is, number one, tell me beforehand so I can create a thread for that event, because if I don't do that, it won't work. So I have to have a thread created for that event. And then, number two, just put hashtag PFA, like Poker Fraudler, PFA, and then a two-digit number for the event. And if it's an event that's less than 10, which, actually, I don't think that applies anymore. I think they're all past 10 now. So it's the two-digit number. So if it's event number 13, it would be hashtag PFA13. And then that will automatically post your tweet to the 2022 World Series of Poker form. So really, it's just use the hashtag and tell me beforehand to make a thread for that event. So Matt is asking me to make one for 21, which he's going to play, which I will not be in. And I will do that. Try to remember to do that. But if any of you are going to live tweet in this way, then please let me know. And I will create that thread. And don't feel shy to ask me. Don't think you're a burden or anything. Like I like when people do this. It kind of creates a sense of community here at the World Series of Poker. So I, I will create that. If I forget some reason, Matt, let me know. And yeah, I'll, I'll definitely make some time to see you here. I won't fly by you on the way to the elevator or anything. Um, hey, speaking of the tweets, did you did you catch... I think you caught my thing. You originally started tweeting in the wrong event. Yeah, yeah. See, I, I had the housewarming event on my mind, even though I wasn't playing in it because of some of the drama involving it so for whatever reason event number five got stuck in my head so when i played event number seven the omaha event i was tweeting hashtag pfa05 and it kept posting to the housewarming event and matt and one other person brought it up and then i fixed it i i went and actually moved those posts to the right thread and then i started using the correct hashtag yeah so uh and so when is your next event well I'm going to be playing Limit Hold'em. I'm going to play Limit Hold'em at uh, 3 o'clock tomorrow. And that is the first event I ever played at the World Series of Poker in 2005 and finished in third place. And have I final table that again since? No. Have I cashed since? Yes. Have I stone bubbled it? Yes. Was I the chip leader with 42 people left and then went out in 40th place? Yes. I had all those experiences since finishing third. And and how long are you staying there, and how many more events? Well, as I mentioned, I'm going to be going back and forth, because I don't want to have seven weeks away from my family. So I go back and forth, and in this batch I have a few more. And I'll get more into that when I do the World Series segment, which is going to come up right after your phone call. And... I will be in probably about 10 total events this year, give or take. 
like the usual. And is uh, Traderuski? He's is he there now? Traderuski, I think, is there now. This is kind of weird. I thought Traderuski wasn't coming until like the mid series, and then he texted me something along the lines like he's coming this morning. But then I messaged him and said, "Are you here?" And he hasn't answered me, so I don't know what's going on. I think he's here. I don't know why he's unreachable at the moment, but. You know, he'll always pop up somewhere. If he is here, I'll definitely see him. I see. And so are you staying at a hotel at the in that area right close by? or I'm in a secret location, is all I will say. But okay. uh, I, I'm somewhere that's uh, accessible. But I, I, I won't say any more at the moment. And I'm not going to let anyone uh, prank me. We've had people pranking me by trying to guess where I am and calling the in-room phone during the show. I've taken measures to stop that. So, we're not going to have any of that going on. Anyway. Uh, okay, well, so, what, what's your... I get, Well, I guess you'll go over it. I was going to say just your overall feel of, like, the... Yeah, that'll be know, the next the segment. Of, uh, walking through there, and I, I heard it was pretty warm in there. That will be part of it as well. I'm going to give everybody a full overview of what I have personally experienced at this new venue at Bally's in Paris. And I'll try to also give some tips, having experienced it myself. Yeah, okay. Well, that's cool. I'll, I'll uh, message you when I'm there. Like, I'm, I'm looking forward after two and a half years of playing. I've, I've played one live tournament here. They just started up again. Um, just a real small one. But I'm looking forward to actually going out and doing something. Uh, so it'll be it'll be pretty cool. Yeah, that's good. So let me know when you're out here, and yep. uh, I will see you. Okay, we'll talk to you later. Okay, Matt. Bye. Bye. All right, Matt the Rat. I have only seen him at the World Series of Poker. I've never seen him any other place in person. But I've seen him a bunch of times at the World Series. Very nice guy. I even lost my car with him once. Okay, so let's get to the World Series stuff. So as Matt was talking about, I'm going to tell you everything that I have personally experienced so far at the World Series, which has not been very long. I got here early Friday morning, and right now it is late Sunday night. So we're talking about almost three days now. And I've played two events. Obviously, I did not win either of those events. I'll give you that spoiler right there. Remember, the World Series of Poker is not at the Rio anymore. The World Series of Poker is now at Bally's and Paris, and we had a long segment about this last week, and I'm not going to repeat that stuff. If you want to hear all the stuff about the move and the information about what's where and all that, uh, listen to last week's hour-plus segment about it. This week's segment is going to be my personal experience with it and my impressions. So I had two events on the schedule for myself that were back-to-back days. I would not be playing the second one if I made day two of the first one, but that didn't happen, so I did play both. So the first event I was going to be playing was event number seven, $1,500, Omaha 8 or better. I did cash in that at one point, not this year, but I cashed 59th place out of like 900-something people, I think, in a previous year. I believe I've only been playing it since like 16 or 17, and then I haven't played it every year because of some scheduling conflicts. So I haven't played it that many times. I was not an Omaha player until around 2016 when I 
taught myself the game. I was only a Hold'em player. Then finally I decided, you know what? It is time to branch out. It is time to branch out and learn other games. So I did. And I continued to do this. So I'm very comfortable with 08. In fact, I'll play High Stakes Cash 08 now. So 08 is not a game that feels foreign to me at all. I know 08 very well. I feel very comfortable playing competitive 08. So I was excited about this event. And that was my first event. It actually got a record field of like 1,059 people. And that's not surprising because Omaha is growing in popularity. Both PLO and the other forms of Omaha have been starting to really catch fire over the past several years. Some people have just gotten sick of No Limit Hold'em, and they've moved on to Omaha. So some people like PLO, some people like Omaha 8 or Better, which is a split-pot limit version of Omaha. Some people like Big O, which is a five-card version of PLO Hilo. But anyway, Omaha has been growing, and Omaha 8 or Better that event gets a combo of newer people who've gotten into Omaha, like myself, and people who always liked it from a long time ago. But let's get into the whole venue thing first, before I talk about that event. In fact, I don't have that much to say about that event. But as far as the venue... So first of all, I was worried about the parking issue. Now, putting aside the parking charge, which I don't have to pay, because... I have a high enough card to where I'm not charged anything. But putting aside what people have to pay for it, let's just talk about the availability of parking. The two places that are associated with Bally's in Paris are what's called the Bally's Lot, which is an outdoor lot behind Bally's on Flamingo and Coval, exactly where uh, Tupac got shot. And then... There's what's called the Paris Garage, which is actually a garage that is combined for both hotels. So they call it the Paris Garage, but the truth is, when you get to the bottom of the escalator out of the parking area, you're right in between Paris and Bally's and can go either way. So it, to me, I didn't even know which one they call it, but it, it's called the Paris Garage, technically. But I wasn't sure if that was going to be enough. Because it's not just the World Series of Poker people they have to worry about. Unlike at the Rio, where the convention area was basically only World Series of Poker people parking. Here, it's everybody visiting Bally's or Paris, and everybody staying at Bally's or Paris, plus all the World Series people. So, I wasn't sure if these lots were going to be big enough. So, did it pass that test? Well, I would say sort of. On Friday, parking was easy to find when I went to go park for that event. Now, mind you, this was in the early afternoon. And a lot of people who were there for the housewarming event were playing at 10 a.m. But still, a lot of those people were still there because, you know, 10 a.m. is not that long before I got there. So I would think that there would have been a lot of parking demand, but surprisingly, it was very easy to find a spot. And I was okay, and I parked, and uh, I was impressed with how easy it was. However, 
Saturday was a different story. Saturday, it was tough to find parking. And in fact, uh, they have these electronic signs which say how many spots are on each level. And uh, one of the floors has that wrong. (laughs) So keep that in mind. If you see one floor looks like it has a ton of spots that's in the middle, it doesn't. That's kind of dumb. I don't know why they haven't fixed that. But I found that parking was pretty tough to come by on Saturday, and I lucked into that someone had just pulled it out of a spot. And it wasn't like I saw them pull out. Like, I saw a car driving away, and then I drove over there, and it was probably that car because there was one spot open, and I took it. But had I not gotten that spot, I don't know how long I would have driven in circles because I saw a lot of people driving in circles. Now, yes, this was a Saturday. Yes, that very popular housewarming $500 event was going on. So this probably was one of the times of the most parking demand. But they did run out of space. So I don't know if they're going to have this problem a lot or only on the very worst days. But I would prepare on Saturday or Sunday if you're going and need to park to have to take extra time to find a parking spot because you may not be able to. So what I was a little bit worried about happening kind of did happen. But during the week, it was totally fine. But the the, the weekend, uh, I didn't check today because I don't have an event today. But yesterday, it, it was definitely pretty bad. And I just lucked into a spot. As far as the way the whole thing is laid out, I was confused. I'm not anymore. I know it well now. But at the when I first got there Friday... Even though I know Paris and I know Bally's, not as well as I know Caesars or the Rio, but I know them. This wasn't my first time in either hotel, but I had no freaking clue where to go. There was no signs anywhere. I was sure I'd see something like World Series of Poker Players this way, World Series of Poker Rooms this way. No, nothing. Yeah, there was some World Series of Poker insignia on the ground as you're walking in. That doesn't help you. That just means World Series of Poker takes place here. Well, thank you. I know that. But how do I get there? They don't tell you. I was walking around. I actually had to ask someone who was working there to point me in the direction at both Bally's and Paris to get to the areas where the World Series of Poker were running. And it was not obvious. It's not like you'd walk in and you'd look across and there's this huge tournament room and you say, oh, that's it. These are both kind of hidden away from the main area. So this is not particularly easy to find. And I was very surprised there was no signage. And I saw others on Twitter complaining about this as well. That's pretty shocking to me. That with all these thousands of people coming in to play the World Series of Poker, that they do not have signs directing people to there. But I could not find one. Maybe there's one hidden somewhere, but I did not run into one. This should have been something that hits you in the face that you know the World Series is there. Like, honestly, you, you pro- unless you were looking on the ground as you're walking, you wouldn't even know it was there. Because there's not even, like, World Series of Poker stuff around there. You just don't see it. It looks like just normal day there at Paris and, at, uh, Paris and Bally's. Anyway, once I figured out where I was going, one nice thing that I will say is that the Paris ballroom, where they have this... Uh, Most of the action is over there. The cash game action is in there. The King's Lounge is in there. All the day ones of every single event are in there. It is a huge room. 
it is bigger than the Amazon room at the Rio, is bigger than the pavilion room at the Rio. It is a huge room. And they were able to have a lot of poker tables in that room. And they were not cramped together. So they were nicely spaced out, which at a time when Omicron is starting to spread again, is nice to have. Because the farther away you are from other human beings breathing and talking, which is what causes you to catch Omicron, the better. Now, still, you're going to have thousands of people in the room, and you're going to be walking through the same air, and the particles from Omicron can hang in the air. And I'm going to, we're going to talk about that during the COVID segment. So I'm not saying you're safe there, but it's still better off that you're not right on top of people. So I did like that the tables were spaced well. You may have wondered or heard about the temperature, because the Rio was notoriously cold, especially at night. It was over-air-conditioned. And during the day, especially with big field events, it actually wouldn't be that cold in the Rio because those thousands of bodies would actually heat up the room and counteract the over-air conditioning, so it would actually be reasonable. But once people would bust out and leave, then it would get freezing. So that's why I say at night, because the AC would still be on full blast, but there wouldn't be many bodies in there anymore. And boy, would it get cold. And I always told people at the Rio, make sure to wear pants and make sure you dress in layers. Make sure you have a jacket. Because otherwise you will be miserable. Otherwise you will get very cold. And it's counterintuitive to bring a jacket to Vegas in the summer. Where the low temperature often is not below 85 or even 90 on some days. Well, Paris did not have this problem. Paris was not cold. On Friday, I actually found that Paris was kind of between nice and a little bit warm. So I brought a jacket down there. I never even thought of putting it on. And in fact, I was a little bit warm at some points. On Saturday, for whatever reason, it was a little cooler. Especially, again, as some people left the room as time passed. It was never really cold like the Rio, but I did eventually put my jacket on and left it unzipped. So, I won't say it was hot in there, and as I said, at night it got a little bit cool and I was happy I had the jacket there. I actually went to go retrieve it from my car. But it's definitely not as cool as the Rio. And it may even be warm for you on certain days. I don't know why Friday was warmer than Saturday. A lot of people have been remarking the same thing on Twitter, that they're pleasantly surprised that it's not cold like the Rio is. So that, that was a surprise to a lot of people. I think everyone was conditioned for all those years, 17 years at the Rio. They felt it would be freezing cold, and it was not. So I, I, the temperature was better. The layout of the room was better. You have everybody in one room playing day ones and playing cash, and you, know, you have this big, big, big room, and you're not having to navigate between the pavilion room and the Amazon room and the Brazilian room and wherever else. So that's nice. What about registration? Well, I had hoped it would be better. They said they had a record 16 cashier stations open and 10 cashier stations for VIPs, which really meant diamond. Diamond or higher. 
So I said, oh, wow, 10 stations for Diamond. That's going to be blazing fast. And 16 for regular? Yeah, there'll be a line, but it won't be terrible. Well, let me tell you, there was a line. There was a line in both places for both regular registration and for Diamond VIP registration. The Diamond line, in fact, was pretty slow, and they did not have all 10 stations open, which I just don't get. Like, why do they not have every station manned? It does not cost them that much to hire extra employees to man every station for the main hours when they're operating. They don't need 10 stations open at 3 a.m. That's understandable. But throughout most of the day, from morning until evening, there are a ton of people trying to register. Basically, any time that events are open for registration, you need to have every station open. Once all the registration closes, then you can start bringing it down to where every window doesn't have to be manned. And then you can keep kind of a skeleton skeleton staff in the middle of the night when you're going to have very few people coming through. So, in fact, I went there to register for my next event at four in the morning today. And there is actually... I actually didn't breathe to the front. There were still like two people ahead of me, but there was only uh, two cashiers there, and that's fine. I wasn't going, why are they not have 10 cashiers at four in the morning? I understood that, and it was pretty quick to wait for those two people to finish what they were doing and get my registration done. But the first two events, I registered for the events when they were starting, and there's a very long line. Longer for non-diamond But even the Diamond line was very long. To see some of the stations weren't open was pretty shameful. So that really hasn't improved all that much. From what I'm hearing, the housewarming didn't have its uh, six-hour lines like similar events did at the Rio. Remember, the Rio had some just horrendous lines for those big field events. As I said, some years, six hours. That didn't happen. However, there were some very long lines. They can still do better. I don't know why they don't find other ways to do this. I don't know why they don't find ways to open more cashiers at the same time. Like they're building this area new for the World Series of Poker. They can't even say, well, this is how we designed it. We're just putting the same stuff back up. Here they're creating it all. They're creating it all fresh for 2022. Why would they not make more than 16 stations? And why would they not have every station open? So that was kind of a fail. Not as bad as the Rio, but kind of a fail. As far as the chips, in case you're wondering, did they change those old Rio chips that said Rio? Yes. Do they say Paris or Bally's on them? No. They say Caesars now. So Caesars realized the mistake. They had to toss away all those Rio chips because they say Rio on them, and they can't use them anymore. They're like, oh, crap. That was not smart. In fact, we're not going to even own the Rio. We don't own the Rio. We're presently leasing the Rio, but pretty soon that's not going to be a Caesars property at all. It's not even going to be a casino at all. So we can't continue with these chips, and it's not at the Rio, so we just have to do away with it. So they had to get rid of all those chips and make new ones. So every chip you're using is a new chip, and it says Caesars on it. So this way, no matter where it moves, it's just 
going to have that generic Caesars thing on there, which people will understand means Caesars properties, not Caesars Palace. So it is nice to play with new chips. I went over to both sides, uh, Paris and Bally's, but I didn't spend much time at Bally's. Unfortunately, I did not make a day two in either event. So I did not get to play in Bally's yet. It doesn't take all that long to walk between them, I would say. Probably a few minutes if you exit the Paris tournament area to get over to the Bally's tournament area, if you know where you're going. But as I said, neither is particularly easy to find on the first try. They're both kind of in the corner. The Paris one is actually fairly close to the what they call the Paris garage. The Bally's one is a bit of a walk. So if you park in the Paris garage. You can get down to the tournament area pretty quickly if you're playing in Paris. Basically, at the first floor, you get out. There's a walkway to an an escalator. You get to the bottom of the escalator, and you're already very close to the tournament area. Whereas uh, Bally's, as I said, you have to walk through the little... uh, 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 like a brief little shopping area and then walk through this place with kind of like a rotunda and then you'll go into the main casino you get across the main casino and got to go all the way to the corner and you'll find the Bally's area over there but once you know where you're going it doesn't take very long it's actually a faster walk than I thought it would be as far as food goes uh, I have not played an event yet which requires me to have to make a food choice because There is no dinner break at the 3 p.m. events, which is good and bad. Uh, Sometimes I'm happy to have no dinner break. It's like it's really crappy to be like really short stacked. And then the dinner break comes and you've got to wait 90 minutes to come back just to chunk off the final tiny bit of your stack. On the other hand, if you haven't eaten yet or even if you have and you get hungry, you're just kind of stuck for all those hours. But remember, it's 10 hours of play plus a bunch of 15 minute breaks. So you're there about 12 hours, and you don't have any kind of appreciable time to get food. Each break is only 15 minutes. Now, that's not new for this year. That was going on at the Rio, too. But since I played both 3 p.m. events on Friday and Saturday, I didn't have to go get the food there. So I didn't really get to explore that part of it. So I can't really remark there. As I mentioned on the last show, I think it's probably better to go to places that are not in that food court. I think the food court's probably just overpriced and not very good. It's all going to be overpriced. But if you're going to pay high prices, you might as well get something that's better than fast food quality. Uh, there's a Dave's Hot Chicken that's over there that I might want to try. There's this Nosh Deli I might want to try. I think those might be decent. So I'll give those a try and I'll report back. But I haven't gotten to try any of these Paris and Bally's places just from lack of necessity. When I play a lot of these 3 p.m. events, what ends up happening is I lose weight. It's really weird. I discovered this in 2019 when I just played a shitload of these 3 p.m. events, and I also made a lot of day twos, and I, I was playing those very long. And those also start in the afternoon and don't have a dinner break. So I was eating these very large meals after the day was over. Very large, high-calorie meals. And I was a little worried that I was eating so much after these events 
that I was going to get back and weigh myself and found that I gained like 10 pounds. Well, I was surprised to get home and found, and I found that I lost eight pounds, not gained 10. I lost eight. And I lost eight because I was doing unintentional intermittent fasting because I wasn't eating due to the lack of dinner break. That was uh, a nice surprise. I ended up gaining it back. But it was a nice surprise at the moment that I actually ate like a pig after the events and lost eight pounds. Now, yes, I could have ordered like All-American Dave or grabbed something at the poker kitchen during the events. Those 15-minute breaks, but you know why I didn't do that. I always said if you had me living at Disneyland, where the food is really expensive, I'd probably be really thin. That'd be a way to get me to lose weight. You don't have to send me to Fat Cap. Just send me somewhere that the food's expensive. I will lose weight real fast. The worst thing you can do is put me somewhere there's a lot of unlimited food or cheap food. The events themselves, the 08, I started off okay. I was never killing it, but I started off slowly accumulating chips, and I got my 25K stack to 31K at the best point. Unfortunately, that was it for my decent luck. I just started losing every hand. So we went through hours of play where I didn't win a single pot. I had a few where I chopped them, but it was like a heads-up chop. You get a lot of chops in 08 because someone gets the high, someone gets the low. But I did not scoop a single pot for hours, and that's not good. Now, the structure was actually very slow at the beginning, so that actually helped me because if the structure was not slow, I would have busted much earlier. I was thinking, well, at least one good thing about this overly slow structure, which really they should make faster at the beginning and then slow down later because otherwise later it becomes a card-catching contest. But still, in this case, it was helping me out because I was running badly and I wasn't busting because the blinds still were not that high. But I was just losing every hand. So hours were passing by and the combination of getting blinded off and losing was dragging me down from that high of 31K down to uh, below 10. I just wasn't winning, wasn't winning. I'm looking at my own tweets here, which you can find at Dandruff Poker. It was at 6.58 p.m. that I had uh, made a hero call and was correct, and I was up to my high of 31K. This is after a guy uh, had an ace-2 low draw that he was trying to hit and just kept firing, and I actually just called down with middle pair, and the low did not hit, and he bluffed the river, and I called, and I won. That was my high point. However, I continued losing. Two hours later, at 8.50, I tweeted, haven't won a hand in a while, down to 13,400. And then uh, at 9.12 p.m., 22 minutes after that, I still hadn't won a hand. I was down to 9K, and... I continued to lose. Finally, I got uh, I got dealt ace, ace, king, queen, double suited, which is better in PLO than PL, than uh, Omaha 8 or better because it's not going to make any lows for me. But that's actually a pretty good all-in hand because what you want with an all-in hand is something that can scoop the whole pot. And if it's a hand like, uh, like ace, deuce, three, six, 
The problem with that hand is that uh, a lot of times it's only going to win the low. So you want something like Ace-Ace, King-Queen. I mean, obviously, that's not the very best hand. I would want something like Ace-Ace, uh, Deuce-3. Then that can win the high and the low. But Ace-Ace, King-Queen, double-suited has a lot of potential to win the high. Unfortunately, I didn't get the best board there. The board ended up uh, Jack-7, 3-2-5. I had about 4K to put into the whole hand, so I was getting it in pretty fast. Anyway, I ended up losing on the turn to someone with, with a 7 two, ten. So they made two pair with their 7-2. When they two hit the turn, the five didn't help me, and that was that. I was out. I said, not a great start to this series, losing about every hand, or losing every hand for about two and a half hours to bust. That is exactly what happened to me. The final two and a half hours, I lost every hand, or at best, chopped them. So that wasn't very nice. You know, that wasn't very fun. I considered going to play cash that night, but I said, you know what? I have stud coming up tomorrow. I was going to play my first World Series of Poker stud event in my life. I'd never played stud at the World Series ever. And I said, you know what? Stud is not a game as familiar to me as 08 or Hold'em. So when I go into 08, I don't need to brush up on 08. When I go into Hold'em, whether limit or no limit, I don't need to brush up on them. But with stud, I did. In fact, I wasn't a stud player at all until, I'd say, about two years ago. Two years ago, I started to play stud at a home game, a low-stakes home game, so it wasn't for any kind of real money. But that was where I was gaining some real-life experience playing stud. However, the problem with this home game was that uh, they were making all these weird modifications and variations on stud, so it wasn't the same stud I would be playing at the World Series. Also, some of it was stud high-low. But but even putting that aside, even the, the stud high, they were always modifying it to put little tweaks into it to make it more fun. And I guess that could be fun for a home game, but it, it doesn't prepare me all that well for a straight stud high that's going to be at the World Series. So I, I still needed to brush up on stud strategy. So I spent the night... Instead of playing cash after I busted the 08, I spent the night uh, doing a lot of reading on seven-card stud strategy. So I came into the event not with a lot of real-life seven-card high experience, aside from that home game, which, as I said, has a lot of variations which make it different. So the form of seven-card stud they're playing here at the World Series, they didn't have a lot of real-life experience playing it. But I did just spend a long time uh, doing a lot of studying for it, basically. And I had been doing some play at that home game over the past two years. So I did have real-life stud play as well. So I felt uh, fairly comfortable coming in. Comfortable enough to feel good about the event and uh, not feel like I'm dead money. Did I feel like I was... uh, coming in with as high of a chance to cash there as I would in 08 or Limit Hold'em, or no Limit Hold'em? No. But did I feel like I had no chance? No. I feel like I had a decent shot there. I feel like I understood everything pretty well. So I played, and uh, something I will say is that, yeah, I 
felt like I played pretty well. And thinking back, I made a few mistakes, but none of them were that large. And I was comfortable there. And in fact, uh, I happened to play later in cash with somebody who was uh, at my stud table for a long time. And he was telling someone else at the table who were the, quote, good players at his table. And he actually mentioned me. And I thought, oh, that's a nice compliment. (laughs) I was one of the good players there because uh, I don't have all that much experience at the game. So I'm glad I was one of the, quote, good players. Now, unfortunately, I wasn't one of the, quote, successful players at the game because much like the 08 event, after the first few hours, I started to get bad cards. However, unlike the 08 event, I was never above starting stack. I started off immediately losing. Then at 4.42 p.m., this is less than two hours into the event, I couldn't believe it. I looked down, and I have rolled up kings. That's three kings was dealt to me. Two in the hole and one showing. That's the second best possible dealt hand in seven-card stud. And here I got it dealt to me so fast. So the rolled up kings won. I actually got some action from it, too. The guy actually uh, check-raised me on the on fifth street i wasn't having that so i three bet him and got him to call and then he uh he ended up folding either sixth or seventh but i you know, i got some action here it was heads up action but at least i got some action with the rolled up kings so i got myself almost back to starting stack thanks to that but i, I never quite got to exactly starting stack and then came the can't win a hand problem so we went on our first break at about five o'clock and then just after that i just stop winning. I had one disappointing hand. This wasn't a bad beat. It was just kind of uh, frustrating because I thought I was going to have it. I actually had uh, two pair. I had kings up and I had a flush draw. So I had uh, not only two pair with with kings, which is usually a pretty good hand in stud, but I also had a way to improve even, even more with a flush draw. Well, not only did I brick the flesh draw, but uh, I ended up losing to the guy who had aces up and no pair was showing. So that was kind of a surprise to see he had aces up and he never raised me. So here I'm, I'm, I'm betting the whole way. What I had was uh, I had kings in the hole and I think I had sixes showing. So he knew I had uh, at least one pair. I guess he was worried about that I could have trips with the sixes showing. The six wasn't my first card. I think I got the sixes in fourth and fifth street. but And then I got the flush draw, so I, I missed that. But I still had the kings and sixes, and he didn't appear to have two pair. But he did, and he had aces up. So it was surprising. I wasn't like shocked, but I, I, I really thought I was going to win that one. I thought he had a, a pair of aces and didn't want to give it up. And I also thought, you know, maybe I'll hit my flesh anyway. So I lost that one. And then I just started losing every hand. So it went from like kind of a, kind of like a cooler where I was thinking I'm going to win the hand and didn't. Then I got uh, shipped over to a new table and I just was winning nothing. Then came the weird bring-in thing. So for those of you that don't know Stud... There is no big blind. There is no small blind. And not only does everybody ante, but there's also something called a bring-in, which is kind of like a blind, except it's not by position. It's that whoever has the lowest up card 
after three cards are dealt, you know, two are in the hole and one is up for everyone to see, whoever has the lowest up card has to do something called a bring-in, which, again, is like a blind. And what you can do at that point, you can either bring in whatever is the minimum bring-in, or you can raise the bring-in right there to be whatever the small bet is. So let's say you're playing 100, 200, then you could, and let's say the bring-in is 25, you can either post 25 or 100 there, but you have to post one of the two. You have to either bring in 25 or put in 100. There, there's no other choice. And you, you can't fold either. You can fold after you put in the 25, but you can't just say, oh, I don't like this, I fold. So, of course, what you don't want is to get the lowest card dealt and be forced to put in this bring-in. Because it's like being forced to put in a blind. Well, I was getting clobbered by bring-ins. And, and by the way, the other problem here is that since it's stud high, if you get a low card showing, you you typically have a bad hand anyway. It's not like you have an ace and you go, okay, well, yeah, I have to post a bring-in, but, uh, but look, uh, I have an ace, which is a great card in stud. Well, in stud, you don't post a bring-in if you have an ace. There's, there's no way your ace is going to be the lowest card. But here you get both the worst card and you have to bring in. So that's like a one-two punch. Anyway, I was getting clobbered with bring-ins. So with, uh, well, like, I think we had eight people at the table, I think is what we had. You'd think out of that, I would be getting the bring-in 12.5% of the time, right? No, I was getting the bring-in about 50% of the time over an extended period. I'm not exaggerating here. People were commenting on it on the table. They couldn't believe it. Even after people were commenting on it, it was continuing. Over and over and over, I was getting stuck with a bring-in. Even times that I thought I wouldn't, like i get a 7 or an 8, it would end up being the lowest card, so I'd have to bring in again. And just about none of these bring-ins were hidden good hands. So it's not like, for example, I have a 2, but under there is pocket aces. Or I have a 2... And I have two twos, even better. So I've got you know, three twos total. No, nothing like that. If I have a two, it's usually like, like a king and a seven with it. And never all of one suit. Very rarely was the hand I had to bring in a hand I could play. So it was just eating me. Over and over and over and over, I was getting clobbered by bring-ins. Really, about 50% of the time I was getting the bring-in, where the table was laughing about it. And not laughing that I was exaggerating or anything. Others were commenting they couldn't believe it. In fact, one guy at the table said, I've never seen anything before like this in my life. (laughs) That was his comment after I got yet another bring-in. And this went on for a while. So this dragged me down in addition to not winning pots. But because the structure was slow, just like the day before, I was surviving. So I got bring-in down (laughs) to 9K, Remember, we started with 25. Then came this really weird hand that I wasn't in. Of course, I brought it in, by the way. But uh, aside from that, I wasn't in it. I folded the bring in after the, someone raised it. But there were two guys in this hand. And at the end, one of them had fives full of kings. And the other had tens full of sevens. The guy with the fives full of kings was more aggressive with it. So he ended up three betting the, the on 7th Street, the, the last betting round, when all seven cards are dealt. 
So what had happened is the guy with uh, the fives full of kings bet, the guy with the tens full raised him, the guy with the fives full three bet, and this is after they had already had some raising on 6th Street as well. So finally, the guy with the tens full just called. So then the guy with the fives full turned over his hand, and the guy with the tens full looked frustrated, flipped over his hand on the table very quickly just to kind of show, hey, look at this, I just lost tens full, and then mucked it. But it was very quick. He quickly flipped it up and then mucked it. You're going to say, wait a minute, what do you mean he lost with tens full? How did tens full lose to fives full? Isn't that the better hand? Well, yes. The guy with the tens full thought that the other person had kings full of fives, not fives full of kings, so he mucked his tens full in that huge pot. (laughs) But wait, but wait, hold on. He didn't just muck it. Remember, he flipped it over to show everybody to get their sympathy before mucking it. So it was pointed out at the table that the guy with the tens full should win. Now, I saw this too, and I was kind of like, what? Did I just see what I thought I did? But he, he flipped it over so fast, I thought I must have missed something. So I'm kind of sitting there a little confused. And then the guy next to me said, hey, wait a minute, what hand did you have? And the guy says, what? He said, what hand did you have that you just mucked? He said, oh, it's tens full. He said, that's the winning hand. He said, no, 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 he had kings full. He said, no, 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 he had fives full. <laughs> he had fives full of kings, that kings full of five. And the guy felt so stupid. He said, oh, no. But then... Me and the other person next to me, the one who pointed it out, were both saying that the guy who had the fives full should have to give back the pot. I've never seen anything like this before in stud or or really anything else where the pot was actually pushed to the wrong person, but that it actually should be reversed. And the reason it should be reversed is that the guy with the tens full, even though he wasn't trying to do it, tabled his hand. He turned all seven cards over, face up on the table. He didn't, he didn't just like hold them in the air and flash them to people. He turned it over on the table, kind of like let people look for a second, and then mucked it. So even though he mucked it after showing it, once you show it, that's considered showing down your hand, even if that's not what he was attempting to do. He was trying to get sympathy. But he, sh- he technically showed his hand. Well... Credit to the guy who had the fives full. He didn't try to argue. Right away, he said, okay, that's fine. We just have to figure out how to give this, these chips back. So they actually discussed the, all the betting. We tried, like the whole table kind of allowed them to reconstruct the betting, the size of the actual pot. We figured out the size of the pot. The guy who was wrongly awarded the pot then took that many chips that had been pushed to him and pushed it to the guy who should have won. The floor never even had to come over. Isn't that amazing? That the pot got shipped to the wrong guy, and yet the floor never had to come over. So credit to the guy who got pushed the pot that he could have tried to angle this and say no if he mucks it too bad, but he decided to be honest and ship it. And honestly, had this been reviewed, he would have probably lost the ruling anyway because the guy with the tens full actually tabled his hand very quickly. So quickly, I didn't even get to fully read the hand. That's why I was a little confused. But he did table it, and that was enough. But imagine if he hadn't tabled it to show everybody. (laughs) Then 
he would have lost the pot. Brutal. This is a very big pot at that point, too. It was near the time I busted, so by that point, the blinds were going up. Anyway, I kept kind of hanging around the uh, 5 to 10K range. At one point, I got down to 3,400, but uh, spiked a set of eights on 5th Street and got it in and uh, doubled up. I actually had to fade a king on uh, 6th and 7th because the guy had a straight draw, but uh, the king did not come, so I doubled up to uh, 9,600. Then I went back down to 5K. Then I won two pots and got above 10K again. I got to half starting stack, 12.5, which still was way below average, but, you know, I was, well, I was only half starting stack, but that was a lot to me at that point because I hadn't been there in a while. But eventually I got down to uh, not very much. I knew I'd had to get something in. And uh, I knew the hand I'd be doing it. So this was at about 10 p.m., yesterday and I had jack queen in the hole and a jack showing so I had a pair of jacks and the bring in you know just did the minimum and a guy with a 10 showing completed meaning he raised the bring in well I have jacks so I'm going well that guy might have a pair of 10s but you know I I think I I have him beat if he has a pair of 10s I have him beat uh, he has pretty much anything I haven't beat, aside from if there's jacks through aces in the hole. Jacks would be tying me, uh, queens through aces would be beating me, or if somehow he has three tens, he's beating me. But, you know, most likely, if he's completing with a ten showing, my jacks are ahead of him. So I was very happy to raise that and planning to get it all in. So he completed... And I raised, at this point, the blinds were uh, 500, or not the blinds. The, at this point, it was uh, 1,000, 2,000 we were playing. So obviously, uh, I didn't have very much, and I would be going all in no matter what. So he made it 1,000, I made it 2,000. He just called, so this made me believe that he did not have something like aces in the hole, because he knew I was short-stacked. And uh, on uh, 4th Street... He checked, and I bet, and he, he uh, I think, you know, I, who went first? Yeah, I guess I went first. I guess I had the higher card. Whatever it was. I bet 4th Street, he just called. On the river, I only had 2,200. Not the river. Thinking hold him. On 5th Street, you know, there's two more streets after this, but 5th uh, Street, I had uh, 2,200 left coming into that. So I, I knew, basically, this is it. I'm going to get in. Well, I wasn't thrilled to see he was dealt a second 10. So when he got dealt the second 10, he just fired out at me. So I didn't love to see that because if he had another 10 in the hole, I was in very bad shape with my jacks, which hadn't improved. But, number one, that didn't mean he necessarily had uh, jacks. He also could have had a small pocket pair under there that would have uh, uh, put him with two pair, which isn't as hard to beat as if he had three 10s, but still would leave me behind. But anyway, I was pot committed here. Also, I, I wasn't sure I believed him. I just, I just kind of had a feeling he was just firing out there because uh, once he's got that second 10, he knows he's going in with it for sure, given my short stack, so he might as well just put it in. So I very quickly made my final 2200 bet, which is only 200 above what he put, to put myself all in. So obviously he called. And guess what? I was right. He didn't have three 10s. In fact, he didn't even have two pair. And 
He, in fact, he didn't have much. What, what he started off with was uh, three suited cards, and then he didn't improve over three suited cards. What he did improve to was a pair of ten and three and three suited cards. That's what he had with five cards out. He had a pair of tens and three suited cards. I think it was hearts, and I had a pair of jacks. So I I had him uh, not completely crushed, but I was ahead of him, right? Well, he got heart heart on sixth and seventh, and that was that. It's not the absolute worst beat, but uh, it was frustrating because when I saw that he didn't have trips or two pair, I was very happy, and he didn't even have a a flush draw to one heart. He needed to get runner runner hearts and got it. Now, he could have beat me some other way with a, a two pair or uh, another ten, but again, I was uh, ahead there, more ahead than I thought I would be. So that was the end of the stud event for me. So that has been my uh, World Series so far. And hopefully uh, I can turn it around in the next event. Will I play a stud event again? Well, not this series, but yes, I will play stud next year if it fits into the schedule. I I did enjoy playing stud. And I felt comfortable. As I said, I didn't feel like I was uh, the noob there. I didn't feel like I was the fish there. I felt like I belonged. I felt like I had learned enough strategy and, and was good enough at applying it to where I definitely held my own there. Just the cards didn't cooperate well. And I kind of had the same feeling when I first went to an 08 event. Though I had played a lot more 08 than I've played stud because I played a lot of 08 cash online when they still had that going on uh, Bovada before I played... 08 at the World Series, but still, I was kind of like, you know, I wonder what I'm going to see here, and then uh, I felt, you know what, I, I belong at this event. <laughs> and then, I, then the next year, I, I cashed uh, pretty deep. See, so yeah, I'll play Stud again. I don't have any other events coming up that are new games I haven't played at the World Series before, so everything else I'm playing is an event that I've played before. I have not played any Hold'em events yet, if you notice. I did not play the housewarming. I just have not played any Hold'em, limit or no limit, events at the World Series of Poker. But that will obviously be changing this week. And hopefully I can do some damage there. So that's my report about the World Series so far. Let's go on and talk about the dealer fail. I started getting all these texts on Thursday about a massive fail that occurred at the housewarming event. The housewarming event is a multi-day one event where you can enter over a period of days for day one. I think all the way through Sunday. It replaced the Big 50 from 2019. It's one of these giant field $500 events that the World Series does near the beginning. The original one was the Colossus. I think the Colossus technically still exists in some modified form, but it's a shell of its former self. But for several years now, they've had one of these giant field $500 buy-in events. I really don't like these. I feel that you have to get too lucky to win anything substantial. In 2019, I did get very lucky on the first day of the Big 50. In fact, I got so lucky, I even uh, outran aces with ace-king. How often does that happen? 
it wasn't just that hand. I was just running very well that entire day, and I finished among the chip leaders of day one of the Big 50, despite the massive field it had. But I wasn't even that excited. I said, you have to run so well for so long in this event that I just, I'm going to have to wait and see if I continue to run this well, and I probably won't. And if I don't, then I'll probably cash, but I probably won't cash anything that exciting. And that's exactly what happened. I finished 666th place. Yes, 666, and got about 4K. Now, I fired only one bullet, so yeah, it's nice. I put in 500 and I got 4K out of it, but was that huge money? No. And that was after having a monster first day. So I just think these events are too hard to cash big in. You spend a lot of time and you either don't cash or you cash small in most cases. Now, if your goal is to get a World Series cash, then that's a great event to play because the bigger events are easier to cash. The bigger the field, the easier it is to get a min cash. The smaller the field, the harder it is to get a min cash. And you may wonder why that is, because it's the same percentage cashing in both events. But it has to do with surviving versus winning. With a bigger field, you can kind of just skate into a min cash as long as nothing bad happens. You can just really not win very much. You can just steal blinds and win small pots and avoid spots that take a lot of chips from you. And if you do, you'll probably win enough to uh, get a min cash. Probably not much beyond that, but you don't have to win very much. Where, like in a, an event with 100 people, you have to win a lot of pots to even min cash. But the smaller field events, of course, are much easier to final table or outright win. We have a caller here that we'll take uh, before we continue discussing this. Caller, you're on the air. Gross, it's Wolf. Yes. Hey, man, it's been a while. How you doing? All right, so what's going on? Just a heads up to the audience. Uh, down here in the south, Alabama, Georgia especially, but right down close to, like, north Florida, um, there's been a ton of people breaking into games and busting them and robbing people. It, uh, it's been kind of really? the last year. So. Mm. Have, you been, at, have you been at a game? And, have you been at a game where this has happened? No, but I have been at a game like 72 hours before it happened. And oh. so when I got back and everybody was used to coming on Tuesdays, they were all talking about it from the weekend. So, uh, you know, it's we deal with that out here. But I'm surprised more people aren't talking about it online. But I guess your forum people are more West Coast. So, Well, it's a mixture. But, yeah, th- a lot of these home games are getting robbed. I've, I've heard about this, too, everywhere. And that's a big problem. And, in fact, sometimes it's even an inside job where it's a setup. So that, that's a big risk when you take home games. Well, I also just wanted to call in and tell you I was still alive, and I'm glad you still have the show. Thank you, Jeroff. Well, thank you for calling in. Good night, Rolf. Yes, sir. Peace. So as I was saying, you, you can skate into a cache in something like that without really doing very much. And I've done it before. I'm not talking in theory here. I have done it where I, I'm just getting mediocre cards, but I'm not really losing and I just kind of skate into a cash. And when I end up cashing, I go, wow, I hardly won anything. I hardly won any pots. I didn't win any pot of any size. I never doubled up. I never uh, won anything big. And I cashed. Wow, how did I do that? And, well, it's because the field is big. That's how I did it. But then 
the flip side, it's very, it's very hard to get the big money in those events. So I don't like them. But some people do. I can appreciate that. So there were some poker fraudler people who played this housewarming. And I got several texts from people who told me about this delay on Thursday. And they were very, very frustrated by it. So imagine you're sitting there playing a World Series event. And then you hear an announcement that they have to pause play due to a dealer error. And you know it's not your dealer. You know your table's fine. But you go, okay, well, that's kind of weird, but all right. I guess we'll sit and wait. And then you wait, and then you wait, and then you wait. And you're sitting there. And finally, you're looking at the clock, and you're like, wait a minute. They have paused play for an hour and haven't restarted yet. What the hell's going on here? So why do they pause play for an hour? What could this dealer error be? How could it be so bad at one table? It wasn't like multiple dealers messed up. It was one dealer. How could one dealer have messed up so badly to pause a huge field event for an hour? Well, a color-up, for those of you that don't know, is where they take lower denomination chips and they take them off the table and exchange them for higher denomination chips because the blinds keep going up. So even though you'll start with like $25 chips on the table, you won't want to have those chips on the table anymore when the blinds are uh, you know, 4000 8000 for example. So long before that, the 25 chips will be taken off the table. So will the hundreds eventually. And uh, this makes it to where it's more manageable to use chips on the table. So that's very normal. Every tournament has color-ups. However, one very inexperienced dealer didn't understand what a color-up was. And uh, these color-ups usually occur on a break. So at the end of the level, what happens is, first of all, they designate one person to buy up all of the denomination that's being colored up. So let's say they're coloring off the uh, $25 chips. So everybody who has $25 chips will sell their $25 chips to someone on the table who will then give them $100 chips or higher for whatever they give in $25 chips. So let's say you have uh, $725 worth of uh, green $25 chips. You would push those over. You would push 700 of them over to the person who's buying them up. That person would throw you a 500 and two $100 chips. And you would be left with a single $25 chip that is in excess because you can't give that to the person because there's nothing they can give you because it has to be a multiple of 100. So what happens to that extra chip? Well, they do what's called a race-off, where they deal a card for each excess chip that each person has, and then whoever gets dealt the highest cards gets a bigger denomination chip. They'll get one of the $100 chips in exchange for their 25s they have left, and the people who don't get deal the, dealt the higher cards don't. It's called a race-off. It doesn't really matter that much. It's just a way to fairly deal with the excess chips that don't add up to the higher denominations. So that's what happens with a color-up. Everybody gets their chips bought by one guy at the table. Then a floor man comes over, takes all of those, gives him the equivalent in higher chips, and then they do that race-off and it's done. The race-off is usually done right when people go to break. And you're allowed to stay and watch it, but a lot of times people don't because it's not that consequential. 
So at the housewarming at one particular table, I guess everybody left and trusted the dealer to do this right. However, for whatever reason, this dealer thought that the color-up meant that this is some kind of reset, and what she needs to do is take all the chips off the table and put them in her rack. (laughs) So people get back from the break, and they have no chips. All their chips are gone, and all the chips are sitting in the dealer rack. So they're going, wait, where did our chips go? And the dealer said, well, this is the color-up. And they're like... What do you mean the color up? Why did you take all of our chips? Well, that's what we do, right? We, we take every chip off the table and put them in the rack and, we, and then uh, we start over. And they're like, what did you just do? So the huge problem here is how do you give people back the chips they had? Where is there even a record of what chips everybody had? You can ask them, but they would lie. So how do you distribute these chips back properly to everyone that had them prior to the break. So the only way they could do this was by going into the camera footage and trying to zoom in on that footage and try to figure out what each person had. But I think the camera footage isn't all that clear and it may not be at the right angle for all this. So there's a lot they had to deduce. And it took like an hour to get all this done. You may wonder, why would they pause the entire event for this? Why not just pause this one table for it and let the whole event go on. Well, the problem is this gives an advantage to the players who can't play because they get to just sit there while an hour passes and they don't bust. I guess in a way you could say it's a disadvantage to those who uh, would have won otherwise. But like, for example, the short stacks, they get to uh, wait another hour without busting and get that much closer to cashing. I don't know how close this was to the money. But whatever it is, you can't have a whole hour where everybody's playing except one table who kind of gets like a buy and gets to skip it. It's one thing if someone late regs, but if they're already in the event, you can't just pause one table for for an hour and everybody else plays. Now, I would say that under these circumstances and the number of people involved... I actually wouldn't think it is the worst decision if they chose to just pause this one table. Like, I understand the downsides to it that, yeah, you are preventing anyone from busting there for that hour. If it's really close to the money, I agree you shouldn't do it. But if it's kind of like in the mid-stages of the day, maybe just so you don't have to inconvenience thousands of people for a full hour, maybe just let it happen anyway because it's not a major impact. Like, there's no perfect solution here. So I could see that decision too. But yeah, they, they ended up taking an hour to reconstruct the chip stacks and they wouldn't let anyone continue playing until they did. At first, they didn't fully disclose what had happened. They just said there was a, a dealer error, which they have to fix. But eventually word got around and people were very frustrated and kind of bemused by the whole thing at the same time that a dealer could have been this clueless. <laughs> like how could this dealer have thought that they're just taking all the chips from everybody off the table and restarting the whole thing. They really just grabbed every chip on there and organized them in the rack as if they're about to be redistributed to everybody. Like, equally. The World Series of Poker would not comment on what they did to that dealer, but some people reported that they saw that the dealer was fired on the spot. And I would understand that. 
obviously that person uh, does not have the knowledge to deal a poker tournament if they made such a tremendous mistake. That's just a complete lack of understanding of how these tournaments work if you were to do that. But that was a pretty big fail. I've never seen anything like that before. I've seen dealer mistakes before, but wow. Another thing that people are talking about, and this is at a much higher limit event, this is not at the housewarming, this is at the $25,000 entry heads-up event. It was the situation with Christoph Vogelsang, who is a European player, and there's a lot of complaints about the way he conducted himself at the table. Now remember, it's a heads-up event, so this was not something involving him and numerous people he was playing with. But when people were watching him play in the semifinals against uh, Kevin Rabichow, Vogelsang was doing two really annoying things. First of all, he had on this hoodie that mostly covered his face as well. So what he did is he wore this hoodie, but then he pulled the string to make the opening of the hoodie really, really small. So there's this like tiny opening where you see his face. <laughs> it looks like just a hood. It looks like, like a human is, is somewhere in there, but you can't really see who the human is. So that was the first thing people thought was inappropriate. Now, on one hand, you could say, well, what about people wearing masks? Yeah, masks are allowed these days, so isn't this the same as a mask? No, it was worse than a mask because it covered more of his face than a mask. It really covered almost his whole face. Remember, his, his forehead's covered. Like, you really can hardly see anything the way he had that hoodie pulled. Second, and more troubling, was the tanking he did. To say that he played at a slow pace would be giving him way too much credit. He played at a snail's pace. He was playing so slowly that not only was this torture to watch, it was torture for Kevin Rabichow to play against. <laughs> Rabichow must have been going, going crazy. Imagine this. Imagine you're playing heads up in the semifinals of the 25K heads up championship, which is a very prestigious event. And you're trying to play your best game. You're trying to concentrate. And on every street, the guy takes an eternity to act. He just waits and waits and waits. And I don't mean tough decisions. I don't mean Rabichow raised him and he had to think about what he was doing and took too long. I don't mean someone who tanks for five minutes on a tough decision. I mean, like every street of every hand, he was playing ridiculously slow. And not only does this make horrible viewing, but it's also discourteous to your opponent. There is a certain implied, expected pace of play at these events that Christoph Vogelsang was nowhere near reaching. And people were getting real pissed watching this and were tweeting about it. 2013 main event champion Ryan Reese said, imagine not calling the clock every hand. That's saying that uh, Rabichow should have just kept calling the clock on him to make him act. David Williams said, Dan should start clocking him every action now. Will Jaffe said, how is he gaining an edge from what he's doing? So he was wondering if this is gaining an edge. I think it was because Rabichow was just kind of getting frustrated. 
you're just kind of waiting for the guy to do something, and he's not. And you're like, come on, get it over with, do something, do something. You're just waiting for the guy to act, and it's frustrating. And people aren't used to playing this way. Scott Seaver had a lot to say. He said, what Vogelsang is doing in this and every tournament is that minimum angle shooting exploiting loopholes and the rules for unethical gain, and every player in every tournament should make sure the floor has a personal clock on him after five seconds, one that lasts for five seconds, too. <laughs> You're not going to get a clock that lasts five seconds, but I, I agree with the rest of it that this is unethical. This is exploiting the rules that technically you can take as long as you want until someone calls a clock on you. That just because you technically can doesn't mean you should, and that this is against the spirit of what the competition is supposed to be. And he's saying that anyone who plays against Vogel Sang should just, every time, just call the clock on him immediately, knowing that he's doing this. Which, for some reason, Rabbit Chow wasn't. Now, because Vogel Sang wasn't breaking any rules, and because the World Series just chose not to tell him, look, we're making it on-the-spot rule, you can't do this anymore. Which they could do, by the way. They're, they're very allowed to make common-sense modifications and say, look, we're just not going to allow you to do this. You need to play at a normal pace or we're going to start penalizing you. And believe me, nobody would have complained if they said this. But this match lasted over four hours, which is much longer than these usually do. And it was because of the very long tanking. I'm going to play you a short clip from Poker Go. This was uh, Brett Hanks, who was the commentator who was talking about a particularly egregious incident of the tanking. In this one, on the flop of 9-8-3, Vogelsang had pocket jacks and Rabichow had king-jack offsuit. So, obviously, Vogelsang way ahead. Obviously, he's going to be betting this. Uh, whatever it is, it's not something you'd want to be sitting around and waiting to decide. And all Rabichow did was check to him. So, Rabichow checks. And... Vogel saying just sits. He just sits and sits. Imagine the, the board's 983, and you're in the big blind, heads up. You quickly check, and the guy just sits there. <laughs> All you've done is check, and he's just sitting there on the flop of 983 with pocket jacks. Now, Rabishow didn't know he had pocket jacks, but he knows he just checked, and the guy's just sitting, sitting, sitting. So finally, Brent Hanks, one of the commentators, couldn't stand it anymore and had this to say. This is unbelievable, by the way. He has yet to act. Yeah, yeah. That's why I'm talking about other things. I, I, somebody, I mean, somebody over Kristoff's uh, head taking pictures of the moment. I would throw something. Yeah. Like. Yeah, no, it, it, it's got to be tough. I mean, I, I don't want to belabor the point and talk about it. There are, there are shot clocks, by the way, in most of the high rollers, but no shot clock in the heads-up event. And it's got to be difficult to play uh, in a situation like this. I mean, this is the thing. If you're faced with a bet, like let's say he bet and then Rabichow moved all in and then you took three or four minutes, I get it. But this is just a check and on a nine-high board with Jacks. What are you tanking for two and a half minutes with? Yeah. So two and a half minutes he was sitting there waiting to do something on the flop. It checked to him. He just sat for two and a half minutes. So Brent Hanks just went off. He couldn't take it anymore. Now, you may wonder, uh, did Vogelsang have any answer for why he played this way? Well, after the match with Jeff Platt, 
who was interviewing them, this is what Vogelsang said. You can probably see from my tanking that probably one of my weaknesses is that I'm somewhat indecisive. Even in life, I might think a little longer how to make a decision. So that probably transfers to poker. Whenever I can, I try to make an effort to play fast. Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh. Nobody thought he was trying to play fast at any point. And by saying it's one of his weaknesses, you see what he's trying to do. He's trying to make himself sound humble. He goes, oh, it's just a weakness of his. We all have weaknesses. Okay, okay, Christoph, you have a weakness. You know, I've got a weakness too. I've got a weakness too, I understand. We all have our weaknesses. Your weakness is just you're indecisive. You're an indecisive guy. You want to bet that flop of 983 with your jacks. You just think, "Hmm, should I or shouldn't I or should I or shouldn't I? Like, what if I bet... And then what if Rabishow check raises me? Well, how far do I go with this overpair? Like what if what if Rabishow has pocket threes? What if he's got nine eight? Do I really want to put it in? What should I do? Maybe I shouldn't bet. Maybe I should keep the pot small. No, maybe it should be you know what, no wait, you know what? With nine eight, there's a lot of ways he can get there and beat me. I should bet this. No, but what if he check raises me? Maybe I better play small ball. No, wait, 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 wait. Maybe I better play large ball. I, I don't know. Let me think. Let me think. Hold on. I think if I give two more minutes to thinking about this, I'll know whether I should bet this flop. Like that's, that's not what he was doing. He was doing this to tilt his opponent. I'm sure he was thinking also, but he was doing this so his opponent would get kind of thrown off from their normal pace of play. He'd irritate his opponent into not playing optimally. And I've experienced this before. I've been online where people have tanked just to be assholes. So I'll have people running down their full clock on every single street. And in Limit Hold'em, that can be brutal because Limit Hold'em is a fast game. There's very little tanking in general in Limit Hold'em. So imagine a guy taking the maximum on each street. But I've seen that before. And I dread playing when those people are in the game. In fact, there's one guy who was chronically doing it. I actually complained about him to Bovada to put a stop to it. I don't know who he was, but whoever it was, it was the same guy. And he was just doing this to be a dick. So I've dealt with it before. And I hated it. So I can imagine how Rabichow was feeling in this spot. And so that's a crappy excuse. In fact, I think it would be better if he just said, I can do it. I'm choosing to do it. That's all I have to say. Everybody can take the time they wish. Like, at least I'd be honest. Oh, one of my weaknesses is I'm somewhat indecisive. I'm just an indecisive guy. What can I do? What can I do? What a dick. So between the gray hoodie that was covering almost his whole face and the tanking, people really, really got to dislike him. And this really reignites a few discussions. First of all, you heard them mentioning the shot clock. A shot clock, for those of you that don't know, is a timer that you have to act on every street. And that as soon as you're dealt cards, or not when you're dealt, but when your turn starts to act, the shot clock starts, and when it gets down to zero, you're uh, auto-checked or whatever. So you, you have to act in those seconds you're given. So there's no way to tank two and a half minutes. Now, sometimes the shot clock, you have a few exception buttons you can use, but you get like two or three of those, and then that's it. So he was saying there, the announcer, Brent Hanks, that a lot of these events in the World Series that are high roller events have a shot clock, but that the heads-up event happens not to have one. So that's probably why 
Vogelsang felt that he could take advantage of this, and he did. So, yeah, they should have a shot clock there. But there's a second bigger issue we should talk about. And some people are already discussing this on Twitter. And I agree with them. Some are saying that they just need to get people like this out of here. Remember, every casino has a right to refuse service to anyone for any reason. The World Series doesn't need to follow a protocol to ban someone. They can ban anyone at any time, as we've seen with some unfair bans that have been given to some people. So, would anyone have cried if they came out and told Vogel, saying, Stop this crap. You're making poker look bad. You're making this terrible for the viewer and your opponent. This is not the spirit of the game. You either stop this or we're going to penalize you, then we're going to disqualify you, then we're going to ban you. He would have stopped real quick. I think we should see more of this. And we didn't see it this time, but that's what we need to see. We need to see tournament directors who have the balls to say, this is going to stop. You're not going to do this. I don't care what the rules say. This is against the spirit of what was intended. You're not going to continue. If you do it, you're gone. And they have a lot of power over these players because they are the ones who award the money. So if you get disqualified, you may not get paid. Or he would get paid, I guess, up to the point where uh, he made it to that event. But if he got disqualified, then he'd get paid his uh, fourth place money, and that would be it. And then they could ban him from future events. Believe me, that's not what he wants. Believe me, he's not going to fuck around if they tell him to stop. So they just don't have to permit it. They don't have to follow the letter of their rules. They can follow the spirit of their rules. They just need to go to people like this and say, stop. People who are making it unpleasant say, stop. And the public will be behind them. You think if they came out and told Vogel saying, quit this shit or you're going to be disqualified, you think everyone would be going, oh my God, that's so awful. Where's the rule that says you can't do this? You may have a few assholes saying that, but for the most part, the poker world would have been overwhelmingly on the side of the World Series if they were to tell him to stop this. So they should. They shouldn't allow this to continue. And along those same lines, I think it would be fine if the World Series were to ban certain people who are considered undesirables. I think they've already done it to Russ Hamilton. But like Ali Insrovic, he's been playing. In fact, he cashed deep in an event already. I think the 100K. Like, why is he here? Why is uh, Jake Schindler here? I'm not saying that poker should be a popularity contest and that people should be able to vote you off the island if they don't like you. I'm saying that people who are just really considered ones who the poker community doesn't want to welcome because of alleged and widely believed unethical, dishonest, or cheating behavior. If the World Series were just to say, you know what, we just don't want you. You're not invited to this event. You can't play. Do you think there'd be a lot of people objecting? If Ali were banned, you think that people would object? If Jake Schindler was banned? Even if Bryn Kenny was banned? you think anyone would say, no, they should be here. I think if some of these tournaments would just take a stand and, and take a look at those who are accused of uh, wrongdoing and just banning some of them with the ability to appeal if they want, if they feel they're wrongly accused, I think that's fine. And I'm not saying they had to ban every single person who has uh, committed some wrongdoing. Otherwise, you probably 
have to knock out half the field. <laughs> but, uh, you know, ones that are widely despised and believed to be unethical or cheaters or whatever, you don't have to welcome them here. You can You can get rid of them. The World Series of Poker is owned by a private company who has the right to reserve, refuse service to anyone. If they think most players don't want to see that person here, they can just tell them bye-bye, just like I think they did to Russ Hamilton. I think Russ Hamilton cannot play, and he was not convicted of anything, right? But I think at some point they decided we just don't want him here. So I think they should do that with more people, and I think people who are angling and people who are cheating even we had some cases like where people were suspected of cheating at the world series like with uh marking cards and stuff but it was mishandled they couldn't prove it they can still ban them they have to pay them if they can't prove it but they 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 can ban them after they pay them they need to do more of that and less of the petty banning over stupid crap that i've seen happen a few times so i don't think uh christoph vogelsang should have been snap banned for this but they should have told him to stop they should have told him to stop or you're going to get disqualified and then banned. And that would have put an end to it real fast. So this one's partially on the World Series for not putting an end to. And I don't care if he's indecisive. And you know what? A lot of this is subjective. A lot of this can be decided by the tournament director. And that's what his job is. So you can make the distinction between somebody who just takes a long time to make certain decisions, longer than most others do, and ones who are just excessively tanking to be assholes. And this one clearly was the latter. Noah Gray tweeted about this Pocket Jack's 983 hand. Vogel saying tanking for two plus minutes as first to act with Pocket Jack's on a nine high board is so gross. This kind of stuff is bad for poker. You want people to enjoy watching and getting into poker. Eliminate that nonsense. Tank when you need to, not opening action with clear decisions. Yeah, this is what most people think. Now, did Vogelsang end up winning that match? Yes. Did he end up winning the bracelet? Thankfully, no. Thankfully, he ended up losing to what was considered one of the best players to not have a bracelet. Dan Smith. Dan Smith beat him in the finals and took down that bracelet to win his very first one. So congratulations to Dan Smith. Vogelsang was denied the bracelet, and that is good because uh, (laughs) nobody wanted to see Vogelsang win. And uh, there was definitely a good guy and a bad guy in this heads-up match. Christoph Vogelsang still got $315,000 to profit about uh, 290 k for his efforts there. By the way, this field was only 64 people. As you can imagine, they don't get a huge field with a 25K buy-in, and it's also a tough field. So anyway, it's nice to see that that Vogelsang didn't get a bracelet out of this whole thing. That would really be uh, no justice in poker. Moving on to a little more of a humorous topic. Phil Hemmuth wanted to play the 100K high roller event. And he was selling action at 30% markup. I don't know how much he was selling, but he was hoping to at least push some of that cost onto other people while getting uh, 30% back right off the top. Which is pretty absurd. As good as Helmuth is, uh, 
is way too much markup in that field, which features a lot of good players. This is not a soft field by any means. And people were not going for the 1.3 markup very much. It was not selling very well. And Phil ended up skipping the event. And some people thought that maybe, maybe the reason Phil skipped the event is he doesn't want to put up the vast majority of this 100K that he was hoping he'd get enough people buying pieces where that 30% would uh, erase a lot of what he would lose of the part that he owned of himself. Because, for example, let's say he sold half of himself at 30% markup. Well, that's 15K right in his pocket. So then basically he gets to play the event for 35K and own half of himself. So that's much more palatable than uh, putting the whole 100K up yourself. Anyway, Phil Helmuth did not play, but he had an excuse for it. He claimed that he had diarrhea. Yes. Diarrhea was the reason. Phil Helmuth insisted that uh, diarrhea, traveler's diarrhea more specifically, was the reason he was skipping WSOP event number two. He said, I have traveler's diarrhea from the weekend in Mexico. I'm tired, my stomach hurts, and I'm going easy on eating food. So (laughs) he skipped the event. (laughs) What is traveler's diarrhea? Well, according to the Mayo Clinic website, it says traveler's diarrhea is a digestive tract disorder that commonly causes loose stools and abdominal cramps. It's caused by eating contaminated food or drinking contaminated water. Now, it really is just diarrhea. It's the same thing as any other kind of uh, stomach upset that came from food or contaminated water. It's just, uh, they call it travelers because it's something that happens when you're traveling more often than when you're at home because of all the times you have to eat out and uh, in other countries where maybe the water supply is not as clean, such as Mexico. So he's claiming he got traveler's diarrhea in Mexico I wonder if he was dumb enough to drink the water there. Like, how would he not know that you get bottled water in Mexico? I mean, the guy's like 57, 58 years old. He doesn't know this by now. It's possibly it was in the food, too. But I'm not saying Phil didn't have diarrhea. But is that the real reason he's not playing? Or might it be only part of the reason? Could it be that he wasn't that excited to play because he had to put up too much of himself in the event? And then he was feeling diarrhea. He's like, oh, man, I I already didn't want to play. And I'm feeling this. I just, no, no. That's really sapped my motivation. You know what? I'm just going to blame the whole diarrhea on it. So the, the whole thing's going to be just a diarrhea excuse. So Phil did not play. He was not in the 100K high roller. It also was a bit suspicious that he knew he would get better. I mean, yeah, these things don't last all that long, but it seemed like he was very confident he'd be playing the other events. When he was tweeting about the diarrhea and how he wouldn't be playing, he did make sure to note, my first Stake Kings package is now for $50,000, selling thirty k at 1.3, including the 25 k Heads Up and the 25 k No Limit event number 8, so basically, he was planning on playing very shortly after that in two upcoming 25Ks, which is a little bit weird if he's got this diarrhea that 
is making him sit out the other event. You'd think he'd say, well, for the moment, I've reduced my State Kings package from 150k to 50k because I can't play this 100, but I may have to reduce it again if I can't make these either. But it's like he seemed very confident he could make these, and then he did. So whenever someone is pretty sure they're going to make something else that's coming up like right after, then you do have to wonder how sick they really are. Because I know when I'm feeling sick, unless it's something where it's very predictable, like the vaccine of how long it's going to affect me, I will say, okay, well, I think I'll be able to make such and such, but maybe I won't. Maybe this will last longer than I think, or maybe I'll get lucky I can do this or that, or maybe I can't. I don't know. It depends how long it takes for me to get better. Here, Phil was convinced that the diarrhea would resolve himself and he would have normal stools by the time event number six came up. I don't know about that, Phil. I don't have the exact numbers on how the 100K sold for him, but I was hearing it wasn't selling well. I have to imagine that probably was more of a factor than the diarrhea. We had a Poker Fraud Alert Forum member who played the 08 event. He goes by Jay Jammy. He once co-hosted with me here. And I've met him a few times, always at the World Series of Poker. And uh, actually one time I... uh, also saw him uh, at a baseball game where he uh, generously gave me a an extra seat he had. So that was nice to him. Anyway, I was surprised that he didn't say anything to me at the 08 event. Now, maybe he didn't know I was playing, because I, I guess I wasn't all that public that I was playing either. I was saying he wasn't public that he was playing, which is true, but I didn't really pre-announce this. I kind of just showed up and said, here I am, and then I tweeted about it. But maybe he didn't see it. Because I, I think on the main form I didn't discuss it. So this may actually be my fault, partially. I just realized that now, that maybe he didn't know I was there. I definitely didn't know he was there. So he did play. He played the 08 event. But I'm not doing this segment to whine about him not coming up to me. It's very possible he didn't know I was there, didn't see me. But he did make a post today to announce something that he discovered that isn't very good. This is what he wrote. I started getting chills Friday night during the Omaha 8 or better. <laughs> wow. wasn't even after the event. It was during the event. Busted out about 1 a.m. Next morning, not feeling good. Rested and isolated in the room all day. Today, referring to Sunday, woke up with more symptoms. Ran to CVS and the home test was positive. Checked out and headed home. I'd been in town since last Sunday, so likely caught it in Vegas. Yeah, not just likely. 100% you caught it in Vegas. Not feeling horrible like an average cold for me. Hopefully I'll be back next week. Pissed I'm missing my favorite event, the 1500 Limit Hold'em. Well, let me say this. First of all, he did not enter knowing he had COVID or even thinking he could possibly have COVID because he entered feeling okay. But then during the event, he started feeling inexplicably cold. And then... I guess he didn't question it too much, especially because these World Series rooms can be cold. But then he woke up with a number of symptoms in the morning and realized he's probably sick. And then things got worse. He got a test and then showed positive. So he definitely has COVID. And he had been in Vegas since uh, five days prior on the prior Sunday, a week ago from today. So he definitely caught it in Vegas. Usually... COVID takes about uh, two to three days to show up symptoms-wise, so he probably 
caught it on Tuesday or Wednesday. And then Friday night, he felt his first symptoms, the chills. So this is very significant because this was the time he was most contagious. You're absolutely the most contagious for COVID right before and at the very, very beginning of your symptoms. It feels like you should be most contagious when you're feeling the worst. But while you are contagious then, you're not as contagious as you were right before and at the very, very beginning of the symptoms. So Friday, he was like an Omicron spreading machine. (laughs) He registered for that 08 event on Friday, feeling fine, but he was probably spreading COVID everywhere. Then just sitting there playing at the table, feeling fine, spreading COVID everywhere. Then he's getting the chills. He's still spreading COVID everywhere. So the whole day, he lasted from uh, 3 p.m. to 1 a.m., 10 hours of play. He's sitting there and just transmitting COVID like a madman and doesn't realize it. The only possible sign was the chills, but... I understand why he didn't get that suspicious of the chills. As I was saying, he gets cold in these rooms late at night. And even though the Paris isn't like this, he probably just thought it was the same thing, that you get cold at night in these rooms. And then when he woke up all uh, sick in the morning, he realized it was more than that. I have had it before, not with COVID, which of course I've never had, but I've had it before with other viruses where I somehow don't put together that the chills I'm feeling mean that I'm sick. I've had times where I'm just getting cold and I just think it's cold in the room or just that uh, for some reason I feel cold right now and I don't really put it together and then some other symptom will show up and I'll go, oh no, I know what's going on here. This is also a very typical progression for Omicron where it starts off as chills and then uh, turns into tiredness and uh, and then turns into uh, flu-like symptoms. I don't know if Jay Jammies had the vaccine. He is older than I am, but not way, way older. I think he's like late 50s. Definitely old enough to where there's some concern with getting COVID, but not so old to where you think it's like very dangerous, especially Omicron. He said this is not a terrible illness. He's calling it like an average cold. So he's actually had colds that were worse than this. I don't blame him for this at all. As I was saying, there's no way to know. And uh, even feeling cold there isn't going to convince you you have COVID. He didn't have to make the decision as to whether to keep playing because he didn't make day two. But keep in mind, 1 a.m. was fairly late day one. He He probably busted about an hour before the day was over. So I wonder if he had survived to day two, especially with a decent stack, what he would have done. It's going to be a lot of people making those decisions. I have to imagine he would have stayed home but, or stayed in the room, but that's uh, it's a lot easier to stay in the room when you've already busted out than when you have chips to come back to. I am glad now he didn't come up to me. I'm very glad. I'm very glad that he either didn't know I was there or chose not to come up with me, to me because otherwise I would have spent the break talking to him. I, I'm sure I would have been like right there, like right next to him, right in his face. <laughs> he would have been just like, Pounding me with uh, the COVID virus, and I wouldn't know it. It's possible I could be sitting in bed right now with Omicron if I got it from him on Friday night, because this is about the time frame. Like, if I got it from him Friday night, Sunday night, Monday morning now, I'd probably be feeling it now. However, I now have confirmation that it was in the room with me. Not that this surprises me. I'm sure there were several people in that room, in that big room that were uh, transmitting Omicron, just 
given how contagious it is and how many people are getting it these days and how many people are there and just the law of averages say that some are going to be there with COVID and not even realize it, but he was definitely one of them. So Jay Jammy of Poker Fraudler was definitely transmitting Omicron to the 08 event, an event I was in on Friday. So I wonder who was at his table and I wonder if they are feeling sick right now. They might be. If you're at a table for a long time with him, that's not good. Not because of the chips, though. We're going to get to that. It's not because of the chip that he's touching and then you're touching. It's just because you're fairly close to where he's breathing. And when he's talking and things like that, that will uh, transmit the virus in that vicinity. And especially people right next to him are fairly vulnerable. So it's possible that uh, others that were at the table with him are now getting sick. It's possible some of them will uh, have to decide... uh, what they do. I guess the event's probably over now. I probably, I'm guessing the final table was, no, was it today or tomorrow? I don't know. Maybe tomorrow. But yep, there's gonna be a lot of Omicron this World Series, and he didn't catch it at the, at the World Series, I'm guessing, because he probably caught this on Tuesday or Wednesday. I don't think he played on Tuesday or Wednesday. Looks like he was just in Vegas before that, too. We'll talk more about the World Series of Poker and COVID later on, but This is now the second time that I have uh, luckily dodged spending time with someone who had COVID in its most transmissible state. I also had it uh, last week where I uh, almost visited someone who has a kid that is Benjamin's age, and I was going to bring Benjamin over there, and I was going to be right there with them, and it turned out they had COVID and didn't know it yet. But the only reason we didn't go is because Ben had a cold. I didn't want to bring a cold there. So I said, yeah, Ben has a bad cold. I shouldn't bring him over. Boy, am I happy Ben had that cold because otherwise I could have gotten Omicron right there because, again, that person had gotten it and didn't realize they had it yet. And they were at their most transmissible state right then. I want to answer one person in the thread about this, a person named Random Guy, who I think listens to this show. He said, Todd doesn't make any sense. He goes on and on about COVID and getting the vaccine, but then talks about being afraid to catch COVID. Obviously, the vaccine doesn't prevent you from getting COVID, and it isn't a vaccine, and it's more of a cash grab by the pharmaceutical companies. Why anyone would get the COVID vaccine makes no sense. Well, I can answer that. And I think if you've listened to this show, you should know why I get the vaccine. The vaccine doesn't need to be 100% effective to get benefit from it. And I've never claimed it's 100% effective. In fact, I have stated before this World Series started that I have made peace with the possibility that I may get Omicron here. Much like I made peace with the possibility I may get Omicron when my son got it in January and it was right in the house with me. And I, I, I decided I'm not going to be a jerk to my son and just trap him in his room all day and all night and, and not let him out because I'm worried about Omicron. I said, you know what? I'll stay away from him. I'll try to uh, not expose myself to this, but I'm not going to go overboard with it. In fact, I even sat at the dinner table with him right next to him and ate with him there. I just uh, wasn't getting as close to him as I normally would if he wasn't sick. But I, I, I do the same thing when he has a cold. So I was kind of using that same level of caution when he had COVID. But I made peace with the fact that I might get it just as I'm making peace with it here 
And in both cases, I had a recent vaccine. Back in January, I had the third shot two months prior, or I guess two and a half months prior when he got it. And uh, right now, I had the shot about uh, three weeks prior. And that's good to have had the shot fairly close to when you're going to have the exposure, but it may break through. Omicron can do that. And also the fourth shot, it's still not known very well how effective it is. But I, I know it's better than not having it. And I'll tell you what scenario I don't want. I don't want to be going into day two in an event where I have a nice chip stack and then I start feeling cold and a fever and I realize that I have to give up that chip stack because I have Omicron. So it's not just about, I don't want to get it. It's I also don't want this to ruin the events I'm playing if I happen to do well. So it's two things. The only downside is I have to endure the illness the vaccine brings me. But I've decided to do it. That's why I do it. It doesn't have to be 100% effective. But yeah, even though I've had the vaccine, I'm happy if I avoided being right in the face of somebody who has COVID at its most transmissible stage. I'm glad I was not uh, with that person who's the mom of a friend of Benjamin's that uh, could have been transmitting it right in my face. And uh, same with Jay Jammy. I'm glad I wasn't talking to him on the break, standing right next to him as he's transmitting COVID. I'm glad I, that neither of these things happen because that's what you want to avoid is people in, who are transmitting it right now. Vaccine or no vaccine. That's my answer to you. Let's talk about Lisa Vanderpump. Lisa Vanderpump had that reality show, Vanderpump Rules. I never watched it. I don't watch any of that crap. I'm not a reality show guy. Vanderpump Rules was a show that uh, followed the employees at a restaurant called Sur, S-U-R, in West Hollywood. And uh, these are Lisa Vanderpump's employees. This is her restaurant. And she is uh, 61 years old. People say, oh, you know, they, they, Lisa Vanderpump, they made her famous because she's attractive. <laughs> not really. She's like, you know, she's 61 years old. She's definitely not like a sex symbol. She really just got famous because of this series on Bravo, this Vanderpump Rules series that was uh, at, at her uh, Sir restaurant. I guess also two other restaurants called the Pump Restaurant and the Tom Tom Restaurant. These are all in West Hollywood. Some of you may not know this, but West Hollywood is actually a city that is well-known for having a lot of high-end restaurants. A lot of LA's best restaurants are in either West Hollywood or Beverly Hills, and these two cities border one another. West Hollywood is not the same as Hollywood. It's actually an incorporated city. Hollywood is part of the city of Los Angeles. There is no city of Hollywood. West Hollywood is its own city with its own uh, city government. West Hollywood is also the gayest city in the United States, gayer than San Francisco. It's, uh, in fact, I believe 40% of the residents of West Hollywood are gay males. Very few males live in West Hollywood who are not gay. There are a number of straight females who live in uh, West Hollywood, but there's also a number of lesbians there too. But if someone's straight in West Hollywood, it's probably a female. I'm talking about people who live there, not people who visit there. I've gone to a number of restaurants in West Hollywood. There are some good restaurants there. And some people who aren't from L.A. don't realize that's where uh, a lot of the good restaurants are. 
So I never watched her show. I'm not interested in her show. I'm really not interested in any of that type of stuff. A lot of this reality programming is not is fake. It's staged or semi-staged. So these are real people. But the situations they get into are contrived. They tell people to play up their drama. Or they tell them to create additional drama that doesn't exist. They ask the people on camera to do things that are interesting for the camera. I actually think like a real-life version of the Truman Show might be interesting if it's on the right person. Like I always said Ken Scaler would be a good person to have like a Truman Show view of his life. Minus his uh, little forays into Starbucks. I think we don't need to see that. But I think like a, a camera constantly on Ken Scaler would be interesting and sometimes humorous. But these reality shows are not like that. They're, they're showing you what they want to show you. And a lot of this is being staged or semi-staged. And I don't want to watch that. I want to watch something that's either real or fake. So I'm happy to watch scripted dramas where there's actors who are acting out something that was written by somebody else. And I know none of it's real. And I can get into the story like it is real, but I'm not at any point fooling myself into believing I'm watching real life. I know I'm watching a story, but if it's an interesting story, I can get into it. And I also don't mind watching real things that can be interesting. But I don't want to watch something that's a hybrid of the two, something that's presented as real, but is actually fake or partially fake. I either want to watch something that's real or fake. 100% either way. So shows like this are not. Shows like this are in between and not in a good way. But what does this have to do with poker? Well, Caesars seems to like making celebrity partnerships. And they've done one with Lisa Vanderpump. So, for example, they have a Vanderpump cocktail garden at Caesars Palace. They also have, as I mentioned last week, Vanderpump à Paris at Paris. And I think there's one other Vanderpump restaurant. But they've done this with a number of these uh, celebrities who have associations with restaurants, either owners or chefs. So they've made one with Vanderpump. Here's the description from Caesar's website about uh, Vanderpump à Paris. It says, Vanderpump à Paris features delectable dishes, whimsical and unique cocktails, and a lush, elaborate atmosphere with eclectic Parisian-inspired design details. Now, does that mean that Lisa Vanderpump's going to be there managing it if you go? No. She may be contractually required to go there a few days a year, but maybe not even that. By the way, she has a very plastic surgery look. <laughs> I hate that look. I, I hate when women who are like 60 have like a ton of plastic surgery and it's obvious. And in her case, like her lips are way too big. Her face just looks super plastic. And like a natural 60-year-old face on a woman looks way better than the plastic look. Like everybody just needs to accept that aging happens. And that when you're 60, you're just not going to look as good as when you're 30 or 40. And that's just the way life is. Now, you can do minor procedures to improve a few things. You know, get rid of, rid of, get rid of wrinkles or, or, or fix uh, some kind of uh, feature you have that you really never liked. Okay, I can understand those things. 
And sometimes you can do those and you will look better. Sometimes they won't work out. It'll look worse. That's the problem with, cra- with plastic surgery. It's a crapshoot. You, you never know how it's going to turn out. But these procedures to make yourself look youthful, especially for older people that definitely will not look anywhere close to youthful at that age, they usually end up backfiring pretty badly. You end up looking pretty weird. So I really do not like women that have that look. In fact, Jeff Bezos' girlfriend has that look. And his wife that he divorced did not. Like, she didn't do that. Despite all the money, she's like, no, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to age. And yeah, that's the right decision. You, you can accept that you're just getting older and that you're just not going to look young anymore. You can still try to look your best, but uh, yeah, there's limits and people understand that. Nobody expects you to look like a 30 year old when you're 60. So anyway, getting back to Lisa Vanderpump at the World Series, I, I keep getting sidetracked by her. But they made a, they had a partnership with her at Caesars for these restaurants, and somehow they ended up extending that to the World Series a little bit. By the way, what happened to Vince Vaughn? Wasn't he supposed to be like the master of ceremonies? How come I'm not hearing about Vince Vaughn? Remember that? Remember we talked about how Vince Vaughn was going to be the master of ceremonies for the 2022 World Series, and not only didn't we understand what that meant, but it seemed weird. Like, where is he? Did we even have Vince Vaughn? I could ask them about that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tweet to the WSB account what happened to Vince Vaughn. Maybe I missed it, but I, I didn't see anything with Vince Vaughn. I've seen Lisa Vanderpump, not personally, but I've seen the footage of her. I haven't seen Vince Vaughn. Maybe he backed out. It was stupid. I mean, I, I hope he backed out. Anyway, uh, Lisa Vanderpump was brought on to do the first shuffle up and deal, maybe because Vince Vaughn backed out. I really want to follow up what happened with that. So the very first event, I'm not sure if it was the first event, the casino employees event or the first open event, but whatever. She did the first shuffle up and deal, which is a little ceremonial thing that they get someone to do. Sometimes it's a past bracelet winner. Sometimes it's someone famous in poker. Sometimes it's someone related to someone famous in poker. Like, uh, for example, uh, one time uh, Stewie Unger's daughter did it. So, you know, whatever. I I usually don't really care who does shuffle up and deal. Occasionally it'll be interesting. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that person. But they got Lisa Vanderpump to do it, who definitely is not a name you would associate with poker. In fact, prior to that, I had zero association between her and poker. I'd never even seen that she'd played poker. She's not one of these celebrities that you'd occasionally see playing. It's not like they had uh, James Woods doing it or something. Yeah, he, he played the 08 event, by the way, and the stud. In fact, he was directly ahead of me in line to register for the stud. He's a nice guy in person. He really is. He's, he really just acts like a normal dude. He's not at all arrogant, doesn't act like he's famous, always very cooperative, taking pictures with people or doing autographs for people. Very nice guy, James Woods. But like, if they had him as some kind of celebrity who's uh, associated with the World Series, it would totally make sense because he loves playing poker. That's mainly what he does these days is just plays a ton of poker. Or Jerry Buss when he was alive, former Lakers owner. That's what he did towards the end of his life was play poker. So if they had him associated with the World Series in some way, that would 
be understandable. Or even someone who doesn't play quite as much, but does actually play because they enjoy it. Someone like Jason Alexander or uh, Brad Garrett. But Lisa Vanderpump, I've never seen any poker play from her. So they had her do the shuffle up and deal, but then came the cringy part. She actually played an event and she used her little dog, her actual live dog, as a card protector on the table. (laughs) I've never seen this before. She actually had her dog plopped on the table, very well behaved, just like lying there. You you almost wonder if it was alive or not, but it was was alive. It just didn't look like it. (laughs) As her live dog sitting there on the table, and she's using that like to, to hold her cards. Can you believe it? Like a, like a full dog right on the table? Never seen that before in my life. It wasn't like she had it on her lap or next to her or like a little bit touching the table. This was like sprawled out on the table next to her. Not across the whole table, but it, you, can, you can see the picture of it. There, there's pictures of it online. You can see the dog stretches out onto, onto the part of the table right next to her. So people looked at this and, and they kind of cringe, and they're right, because this is not a good look for poker. This looks stupid. And as someone pointed out in an article about this, all this does is makes poker look dumb, and it also makes women in poker look dumb. Poker pro Amanda Botfeld, which is kind of an unfortunate name for poker. You don't want bot in your name for poker especially if you play online. But Amanda Botfeld, who I don't, I don't really know. I know of her, but I've never met her. She wrote an article called, Is Lisa Vanderpump Good for Poker? She said, Lisa Vanderpump, a restaurant mogul and star of the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, kicked off the 2022 World Series of Poker, and the reaction was, well, cringe. Shuffle up and deal? More like shuffle up and reel. Yeah, she's not wrong. And then there's a picture right there in this article. This is on cardschat.com of the dog like fully laying on the table. <laughs> you have her chips and the dog is like right next to her. Like where her cards would go is where the dog is. So then she examines in her article if something like this is good or bad for poker. And she concludes it's bad. And she shows a tweet from Joey Ingram saying, I've been playing poker for 15 years, and this is the first time I've seen someone use an animal as a card protector. What the fuck? (laughs) So she points out that this and uh, Kim Kardashian, who infamously wore mirrored sunglasses while she played poker so everyone could see her cards, (laughs) that these are not very uh, good things for poker. It just It's clearly them hiring celebrities who just have name recognition to show up there and play when they really have no interest in it or the community and everyone knows it. And furthermore, sometimes they'll do stupid and cringy things which just uh, makes everyone laugh at them and it doesn't bring anyone into poker. So having Kim Kardashian with her mirrored sunglasses or uh, Lisa Vanderpump and her dog sprawled on the table. This doesn't make people say, oh, wow, well, we should play poker because this celebrity plays too. It makes you just laugh. It makes poker look silly. It makes the celebrity look silly. So I don't even know why they do it. Like, I don't think this even has much marketing value. Like, everyone's aware of poker now. And I think there's better ways to spend their marketing dollars. 
She also points out that the females who do this and look stupid like Kim Kardashian and uh, Lisa Vanderpump, this is not empowering to women if all they're doing is showing up and looking dumb. That the last thing anyone wants is to look like a fool. And if you have these famous women looking like fools, that's not exactly making women feel good about trying it themselves. It's more likely to actually make them afraid to try and look foolish themselves. So she's saying these aren't even good examples of women who are in the game. And I agree. She also cited a situation in 2006 I didn't even know about when Drew Barrymore was brought onto the WSOP stage trying to promote the movie Lucky You, which was somewhat about poker. This is very bad, too. And she said, I'm extremely honored to be here at the World Championship of Poker. (laughs) And then she said, thank you for being here because poker is cool. (laughs) Even in 2006, that was dumb. The World Championship of Poker. So, yeah, they should stay away from things like this. Also, if it feels like the celebrity is there because they're paid to be there and not because they really have an interest in playing or because they're trying to promote something of their own, this doesn't really make anyone that excited to see them. I personally find it much more interesting when celebrities have a real interest in the game, when they want to play a lot, when they want to get better, when they have an actual interest in winning, even celebrities who just occasionally want to play. People like Jason Alexander, people like certain celebrities like uh, Russell Westbrook or others who want to occasionally take a shot at the World Series of Poker main event. You know what? Fine. You don't have to want to dedicate yourself to poker if you're a celebrity who wants to play. As long as there's some interest in the game, you just want to play on your own without doing it because they're paying you or because you're promoting something. That's more interesting to me. So if I end up at the table with someone who's a celebrity or well-known for something, then it's interesting to me if I know they want to be there just as I do. And if we're just two guys there, or I guess in the case of a female, a guy and a girl there who just happen to enjoy poker, and we're at the same table, and you know one of them happens to be famous, then that can be kind of cool. It's just me and a celebrity doing something at the same time that we both enjoy doing. But not if they're artificially brought into the situation. And I think that's the way most people feel, both uh, pro players and recreational players. So this was dumb. I think they kind of felt this was just something extra they could get out of their association, their business association they already have with Lisa Vanderpump. I don't think they would have brought her in if they didn't already have these restaurants of hers, which they probably co-own with her. Usually that's what they do with these celebrities that are associated with restaurants is that they will have half ownership and this gives an incentive to both them and the celebrity to get involved with it it's it's like a half-half partnership maybe it's not like that anymore but that's the way it was at least in the 2000s and 2010s so like uh yeah bobby flay and guy fieri and gordon ramsay they, they would all own half of the restaurants named after them. That may still be the case. It's something along those lines. So that's probably what's going on with Lisa Vanderpump and her restaurants at Caesars Properties. 
And then they're like, oh, hey, Lisa, you want to uh, further promote this by doing the shuffle up and deal and we'll buy you into a World Series event? Oh, okay, sure. And then she brings her freaking dog. <laughs> How did she not notice that? Why didn't she look around and see that she's the only one with a dog sprawled on the table? I know she thinks because she's rich and somewhat famous that she can do things differently than the rest of us and get away with it. But don't you just kind of feel stupid bringing a dog there on the table? Like, do you not realize that dogs don't belong everywhere, even well-behaved dogs? Pretty dumb. Okay, so now it's time to call out KevMath, and this gives me no pleasure. I like KevMath. I like what he does for poker. I think he is someone who is great for poker. If you want info about anything in poker, you go to him. You want to know about when a tournament's going to be, about a rule involving a tournament, about really any procedural or scheduling matter in the poker world, he will tend to know. Any question of, do they allow this? Or, is this okay? Or, does this have rebuys? Or, is this still happening? He's the one who always seems to know. Not just about the World Series. And he did this voluntarily for years and years without any compensation. You could just go to KevMath and he would just have the answer for you. And he'd just present tweets without you asking with useful information. I once asked someone, how does KevMath have all these things? And the answer was, because he's KevMath. And that really is the answer. And he was doing this just to be a nice guy, to be informative, to help people. So finally, some of this earned him some rewards. He got a job at Bluff when they existed. He was bought into the main event one year by some rich poker players who appreciated him. I think one of them was Negranu. And he got the job to operate the WSOP Twitter account during the WSOP season which is right now. He got that a few years ago. He's done a great job with it. Before he got the job, I said that he should be given the job. And then he was given the job, not because of me, but just they did the right thing. He's really the perfect one to operate that account. In fact, I asked him recently through that account whether the WSP would be allowing you to use Lammers to buy in even if you did not win the Lammers. And the answer is yes. That's a little bonus piece of information for you, by the way. That this year, Lammers are transferable, though not officially. But the World Series has decided to take a hands-off policy once again. That if you have Lammers and you're not obnoxious about trying to sell it, meaning you're not hassling every person in line or standing there in the hallway soliciting everybody, if you make a spectacle of yourself, then they may chase you away. But if someone shows up at the cage with lammers they didn't win, questions will not be asked. And I know that with certainty. At least for the moment. You, don't, you never know what they're going to change. But at the moment, that's the case. So if you were going to play a satellite and you win some lammers, you want to sell them, go ahead. Only thing you got to be careful is that you're not obnoxious in the way you do it. 
You should quietly get in line and maybe ask a few people. And if they say no, don't pressure them. Or even better, find some friends who want to buy them from you. But the World Series, which did stop accepting Lammers from people who didn't win them, uh, they've done away with that. So they are accepting them again from people who didn't win them. So, yes, you can buy and sell Lammers once again, which is good. But I, I asked about this ahead of the World Series, not for myself, because I don't really play satellites, but just for others who were curious. And he found out the answer, and he basically put that out there. So, Kevmath, not only does he put a lot of info out there, but he is smart, he understands the question, and he gets you the answer you're looking for. Sometimes you'll ask someone questions about things, and you'll you'll get a crap answer that doesn't really address what you're trying to learn. But Kevmath never makes that mistake. He always gives you the info you want in the way that you want it. However, even the greats can have their off days. Even Kevmath cannot bat 1,000. And Kevmath had one of those off days this week. And it did cause a little bit of a problem. Nothing huge. Not a terrible thing, but there there was a little bit of an issue. So for completeness, I'll let you guys know, and then I'll let you know the aftermath. So, it seemed like an innocent tweet. On June 3rd, Friday, 7.20pm, the WSOP account operated by KevMath tweeted, Day 1B of the housewarming is on dinner break until 8.43pm. Well, that wasn't true. Day 1B of the housewarming was on dinner break, not till 8.43, but until 8.30. Oops. So people responded back and were not very pleased when they took a little extra time on dinner thinking that they had it, only to discover that everybody was playing poker already when they walked into the room and they thought they were a few minutes early. They were actually 10 minutes late. So a person named... John Means Superfan, who's Nick underscore Verd, V-E-R-D on Twitter, responded, Lies, you made me 10 minutes late, Kevmath. And then Kathy Liebert responded, Me too, with an angry face. Uh-oh. So I guess some people read that and believed it, because, you know, Kevmath is just about always right. And this time he was wrong. He said 8.43, when the actual time was 8.30. Kevmath soon replied with an apology, and I'm sure no one's very mad at him. But it did happen. Kevmath finally got something wrong. But he did apologize, even for a small mistake like this. Now, it is true, it's the player's responsibility to know when to be back. They shouldn't count on the WSOP account to tell them because of things like this. But I can see why they're a little annoyed when the official WSOP account says that, and then <laughs> it ends up not being the right time, and they're back 10 to 13 minutes late. Oops. But that's all it is. It was an oops. Math almost never makes these mistakes, and I'm not sure how this one happened, but, you know, it happened. These people blinded off for 13 minutes. There could be worse things. So, we will forgive him. Kevmath, you still have your high status in the poker world. You're still beloved among us. And I am still honored to have you as a listener to this show.
and I hope you don't mind that I brought up this one little transgression on this show. I did it more to show that KevMath is right such a high percentage of the time that the story is that once he is not right, that becomes the story. It's not that he was wrong, but that it's surprising that once he was not right. Looking in the chat, I have some uh, comments here from various chatters. Disposition says, I think Aussies have better consumer protection as well, if I remember from my when my plasma got the red band of death and I had to look into our rights. <laughs> what? Longhair5150 said, Who's playing a tournament tomorrow? I'm in for the deep stack. I was thinking of playing the 1500 Limit Hold'em. It's been so long since I've played Limit Hold'em, though. Longhair, if you're listening, uh, you're welcome to text me and I will give you some tips. I can't make you into a great Limit Hold'em player through text, but I can... Uh, I can give you some tips, which will definitely be helpful, especially for someone who hasn't played in a while. Long here also wrote in the chat room, I've been eating Bobby's Burgers every day at Paris. It's pricey but decent, right next to my room. Yeah, that's that Bobby Flay burger place. And someone brought that up when I was sitting at the World Series, uh, one of the events, I forget which one, but someone brought up Bobby's and I said, oh, that's really expensive, isn't it? They're like, no, it's not that bad. They said it's like 16 bucks, which... Yeah, it's expensive for a burger, but you know, you're not going to get like a Jack in the Box dollar ninety nine burger here. So that's obviously not a price point you can expect. Sixteen is kind of expensive, but it's not outrageous, especially if it's good. So he's not saying it's wonderful, but he's saying it's decent. So he's been eating that every day. Long hair fifty one fifty. Maybe I'll try it too. Long hair, by the way, if. Uh, you uh, want to come say hello to me at some point, you're welcome to text me. 775-372-8355. I'll be glad to meet you. Blissy6969, who is in Australia, said, where do I find the info on getting a cap? Well, that's at the beginning of the show. Will you send to Australia? I will, but it's a pain in the ass. It makes me fill out all these customs forms and other crap, which I will do. Uh, If it's too expensive to send internationally, I may ask for you to kick in a little bit of money for that. Like, I'll pay the post... I, last time I didn't ask for anyone to pay anything, but I remember some of the international ones were kind of expensive. Australia seems like really far. and <laughs> looks like it could be really expensive. When it's ready to send the hats, I'll, I'll look into the rates. If it's not way more expensive than domestic, then I'll just pay it. Otherwise, if you can kick me a little money for my postage, I'll appreciate it, especially since I have to fill out all these pain-in-the-ass customs forms for you guys. But yes, I will ship it to Australia. All right. Finally, I want to bitch about the King's Lounge, which I know I've done in previous years, but I want to bitch because it's still like this and it sucks. So the King's Lounge is the high-limit poker room at the World Series of Poker. They have a marketing agreement with the King's Casino in the Czech Republic, which is owned by Leon Sukernik, who has been in plenty of controversy himself, if you remember. I kind of wondered why the World Series wants to keep doing business with him, but apparently they do. So they've had this King's Lounge every year. And I guess in a way you're in the King's Casino when you're at the King's Lounge at the World Series. Like they kind of pretend like you've been transported to 
the Czech Republic and you're, you're really there in King's Casino. It has no Caesars branding. It is not considered a Caesars or World Series poker room. It's the King's Lounge at the World Series. And you see King's Casino branding everywhere in there. The whole idea with it is it's supposed to be like a classier, relaxing place that you can play high-limit poker. So they have these big couches you can sit on, not while you're playing, but just you know, in the room you can sit on these couches. And they have a little back coffee room where you can get uh, coffee, hot chocolate, and pastries. By the way, if you try the pastries there, I think the lighter colored pastry is way better. The brownies are way too rich and aren't very good. The lighter colored ones are better, but I will warn you, these like sit out for hours. So I assume they're safe, but they're not necessarily fresh. The hot chocolate's pretty good. I had some hot chocolate from the hot chocolate machine. It was pretty good. It's free, so I guess you can't complain there. But that's the King's Lounge, and uh, they've had that going back to when they were at the Rio. This is not a new thing. This is where all the cash games that are like uh, 2040 and higher at limit, and I think uh, 1025 and higher for no limit are running. And uh, you'll see things there like uh, 5100 Omaha 8 or better, 100-200 Omaha 8 or better, 5500 Stud 8, 1025 no limit things like that so anyway on one hand it's nice to have the king's lounge it's a separate area it is nice to have the little coffee room it's even nice to have those couches to go sit on every so often like i had to make a phone call in the middle of of one of my cash sessions there so i just uh strolled over and sat on the couch instead of having to wander around the room like i usually have to do when i make phone calls at poker rooms so that was nice to have. So it's it's a nice little environment there, but there's a lot of problems with it. And it's the same problems they've always had. First of all, there's no service. You don't have any um, food service. You have a bartender, not bar, you have like a, a drink runner, a cocktail person, whatever. Every so often coming around, and I, re- I really mean every so often, asking if you want anything, but it doesn't happen that much. You can't get food there. You can bring food in, but you can't get food there aside from those pastries they put out. And the cashier is the biggest problem. The cashier is a freaking nightmare. First of all, they're under way, way, way too much scrutiny to verify everything. And I don't just mean scrutiny on the cashier themselves. I mean on you too. So let me compare this to a room like the Bellagio. Let's say you're in the Bellagio poker room or the Aria poker room. Then one of those, okay? Let's say you go up and you say, yeah, I'd like uh, two racks of $25 chips. That means two racks of $125 chips each, which is uh, $5,000 total. Obviously, $125 chips is $2,500 worth, and uh, two of those would be $5,000, right? So at the Bellagio, you would walk up, you would hand them $5,000 cash, which they would then put through a counting machine to count very quickly and see that you've really, really given them a 5000 Then they will ask for your player's card to note that you've gotten it just for record-keeping purposes, which they require to by federal law. 
and then they will quickly grab two racks of chips, hand it to you, and say, good luck. And then you stroll off to the table to go play. But what if you don't want to do that? Well, you can also have a chip runner to go do it. A chip runner is someone who goes and gets your chips for you, and you're expected to tip them like a dollar for it. But the chip runner uh, stands in line for you and does all this for you and brings your cash there and brings you chips back. They have some dedicated chip runners in these rooms, and sometimes the floor man will do it if the chip runners are not available or there's just not many working at that time, like in the middle of the night. So these are things you can do in a poker room like Bellagio or Aria that has high stakes or middle stakes action. Either way, it's a pretty efficient way to get chips. And I do both. Sometimes I'll use a chip runner. Sometimes I will go get the chips myself. But either way, it doesn't take a very long time. Now, let's look at the same thing over at the King's Lounge. So let's say you're going to go play uh, 50, 100, Omaha 8 or better. You go, you know, I'd like to have uh, $5,000 worth of green chips here. So you stroll up and you say, I'd like two racks of the green $25 chips, please, and hand them a 5K stack of cash. They will ask for your player's card and they will sit there. They'll enter all this stuff into the computer. They will just type and type and type. They will verify, verify, verify. You're going to sit and sit and sit and sit and go, what the hell's going on here? I just want to get my freaking chips and play. you got to sit and sit and sit and sit and wait until you get those damn chips. It takes so long. But wait, there's more. What about when it's time to cash out? Well, that's a bigger issue. Because there they really want to document a bunch of stuff. So you give your chips. They count them like three or four times, like OCD style. And then they type a ton of shit into the computer. You're just waiting, 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 waiting. It takes so long for them to give you your cash. You are waiting a tremendous amount of time just for one transaction. Now, think about a number of people wanting this at once, especially, let's say, at Game Breaks, and there's six people walking to the cashier. Well, Lord help the one who's sixth in line. They're going to be waiting for an eternity. But you may say, wait a minute. I bet they have more than one cashier. Um, no, they don't. There's usually only one cashier working in the King's Lounge. Sometimes two, but usually only one. Which causes these long, slow lines, and you just sit there waiting and waiting and waiting. And I don't know what's worse. Waiting for one person ahead of you in line to finish cashing out at the King's Lounge, or waiting for Christoph Vogelsang to act when you've checked to him on the flop. <laughs> Both of these are very unpleasant. It just takes forever. The line takes forever. Even if it doesn't appear long, you can have like three people ahead of you and it's going to be an eternity. And cashing out yourself takes forever. There's just no way to get through that cashier quickly like you can in other rooms. And I don't understand it. But hold on. What about chip runners? Why not make them do all the work? Why not make them wait for you? <laughs> chip runners. You must be kidding me. There's no chip runners in the King's Lounge. You must get your chips yourself. So for years and years, they just won't hire chip runners there and they won't hire enough cashiers 
to man the stations, even though they have like four windows, they rarely have more than one open. Everybody hates it. And it's discouraging. It makes you not even want to play. Like, let's say you only have an hour to play. You may not want to waste the time to buy in and cash out with the lines there. Even with no line, it takes a long time just by yourself. I've had that feeling before. Like, yeah, you know what? I'd like to play a short session here. Ah, oh, the cashier, though. You know, forget it. I'm just going to go home. Like, I, I thought that before. I'm not the only one complaining about this. Chris Fox Wallace on Cards Chat, he wrote about this, too. And he echoed some of the same sentiments uh, that I had. So a lot of people have noticed this. Not just me, not just Chris Fox Wallace. I, I hear tons of people complaining about the King's Room. Chris Fox Wallace wrote, with no chip runners and requiring every player to buy chips as well as cash them out at the cashier window, the number of lines have grown along with the number of cash games. It's not just frustrating to wait in line for five minutes to get chips and again to cash them out. It hurts the games. Yeah, I wish five minutes. A lot of times it's a lot longer than that. Five minutes, I wouldn't be complaining about it. He also complained that the process of filling a seat after a player leaves is a pain in the ass. He said, the process of filling a seat after a player leaves involves a seat card being set out and then picked up by the floor. Then the floor goes to the list and calls the player. The player shows up, gets the seat card, and goes to get their chips, then finds their table. If this sounds like a long process, it can be. Yeah, it was weird. There were like several seats open at the 5008, and I said, hey, can I just go sit there? And they said, what? I said, can I just go sit at the 5008? Oh, no, 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 no. Here, hold on. And they give me this card. And I'm like, what do I need this for? No, no, you need this card to go sit. I had to go like bring a freaking card there. It's really weird. So it looks like there's a lot of stupid bureaucracy there. And at the same time, everything runs like really, really slowly and poorly. So he also doesn't understand why they don't hire more cashiers. And he also says it's frustrating the players, some of whom have no idea how hard it is to run such a big event. People just see raw incompetence and general disinterest in players. And yeah, he's right. But this isn't hard, though. That's the point. This is already done. I hate when it's already solved and then someone unsolves it and does a bad version of what's already solved. Like, just emulate the Bellagio. Emulate the Aria. Go observe their cashier and then do it their way. Like, obviously, it's not a legal issue because Bellagio can blaze through this. Same with Aria. Well, how come they can do it so fast? How come they can have chip runners? How come cashing in and out of those rooms is so easy and yours is so hard? You're in the same city. I don't know why they won't fix this. I'll do my last two topics, then we're going to be done. This is not going to be a real long show because... I've got stuff to do. The Women's Championship event was an event that ran on uh, GG Poker. And it sounds like something that would be a nice thing for women who have accounts on GG Poker. A women-only event. An event where women will compete against one another to see who is crowned the Women's Champion on the entire GG Poker site of who wants to enter that tournament. Not only that, but it was just a $25 buy-in. So very accessible to the low roller, to the females who may not be dedicated poker pros, ones who may just want to take a shot without losing hundreds of dollars in buy-ins. No, just for 25 measly dollars, they can enter this women's championship on GG Poker. 
and they can have some fun, whether they win or whether they lose. One little problem about the women's championship event on GG Poker. It's open to men. (laughs) No, I don't mean men who are transgender and who now live as women. I don't mean men who use their girlfriends or their sisters or their mother's account. No, I don't mean men who just register under a female name and claim to be female or maybe have a female screen name. No, 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 no. I mean the event was actually fully open to anyone, including men, to play. So how is it a women's championship event? It is not one. It is called the Women's Championship event, but anyone can enter it, and anyone did. In fact, most of the entrants in the Women's Championship event were men. Why? Well, because despite the low $25 buy-in, it had a $100,000 guaranteed prize pool. (laughs) Now, let's do the math here. That means if it were only open to women, they would need 4,000 women to register and play to meet that guarantee. I do not believe they have 4,000 active female players on GG Poker. Even though it's a large site, I don't believe there's 4,000 women who play on GG Poker. In fact, people were wondering about that when this was being announced in women's groups on Facebook, it was questioned how they could possibly have a 100K guaranteed event with $25 buy-ins that's only open to women. How how could they get the women? Where are 4,000 women are going to come from? Well, we know. They're dudes. (laughs) That's where the women came from. The women didn't have to be women. The women didn't even have to identify as women. The women could just be anything. could be a human being with a pulse, and you could enter the women's championship event, no matter how male or how female you are. Now, how did this clusterfuck occur? Well, that's a bit of a longer story. Let me try to explain it to you. Let's go back to the earlier days of controversy with Gigi Poker. Let's revisit the Dan Bilzerian fiasco. They signed Dan Bilzerian as an ambassador on GG Poker in December of 2020. And Vanessa Cade, who at the time was not well known, Vanessa Cade called him out and called GG Poker out, saying that GG Poker should not be signing someone like this to be an ambassador because he's misogynistic and he disrespects women, blah, 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 blah. And He responded with, shut up, ho, and he spelled it H-O-E, nobody knows who you are. And this got a lot of people angry and caused a big controversy. Ever since then, GG Poker has been half-heartedly trying to show that they really do care about women. And that even though they didn't fire Bilzerian, even when it appeared they fired Bilzerian like over a year later, they didn't really fire him. (laughs) So... Even though Bilzerian's still technically with them, they have tried in some very half-hearted ways to show, hey, we care about women. 
one of these ways was by hiring a woman named uh, Dava Byrne, D-A-I-V-A-B-Y-R-N-E. Dava Byrne is her name. They hired her to be one of the sponsored pros on the site. And she runs an organization uh, called FLIP. And FLIP stands for Fantastic Ladies in Poker. And it's called a Global Female Community. And she claims to be an advocate for women in poker. And in fact, her title with GG Poker is Outreach and Community Advocate. So basically, they hired Dave Byrne to help do outreach to women to get them into poker. She took some heat for being, uh, for continuing to work for GG Poker with this uh, whole Bilzerian thing that she should quit for this. And I, I didn't agree with that. I, I don't think that uh, she should have to quit because they hired Bilzerian. But that, that's what Vanessa Cade and some other people were saying. So she took some heat over that. But anyway, she continued forward with her flip group and in fact flip has a facebook group and i think there's like seven thousand members of it so she was promoting on her facebook group this women's championship of poker and she did not say this was open to everybody she just was promoting it and saying hey go play this we have this thing coming up at 100k guarantee 25 dollars for the women's championship of poker so finally, uh, a question was asked about this tournament, if it's open to everybody. On the Facebook group, someone named uh, Wendy Watson said, wow, that's a huge guarantee for such a reasonable buy-in. And then someone named Carolyn Shalok. These are not big names in poker. These are just like random women who, I guess, play recreationally. Said, hey, Deva, was that ladies-only tournament uh, open for everybody, but this is already after the tournament was running. And then finally at that point, Dava Byrne said, Hi, Carolyn. It's a female-focused and marketed event. However, it's open to everybody, as unfortunately on GG, it's not possible to restrict games to women only. Ah. <laughs> <sighs> And now, keep in mind, when Wendy Watson said that's a huge guarantee for such a reasonable buy-in, you would think at that point Dava would say, hey, well, there's a reason for that. It's because it's uh, open to everybody, so we know we're going to hit the guarantee. Instead, she just didn't answer until she was asked specifically, is this open to everybody? And that is after the event already started. A woman who goes by Kaboom Poker, and she's Kaboom Poker 1 on Twitter, K-A-B-O-O-M Poker 1, wrote... Making women feel welcome on GG Poker is not a priority. Track record speaks volumes. Making the GG Flip Ladies Championship for women only seems too much effort. But even for GG Poker, having your male ambassadors enter a championship event intended for women is a new low. <laughs> now, what does she mean by that? Well, <laughs> not only was this open to everybody to enter. 
but one of Gigi's own male pros entered the event. <laughs> now that really just rubs salt in the wounds there. Like they couldn't ask their pros to stay out of this. It's one thing if the software can't stop males from coming in and males just join it. But but to have one of their own pros actually play the game, actually enter the event is insane. Like you did you'd think they'd at least tell their pros, hey don't enter this here. So the pro known as All In Pav, whose real name is Hrist Vige Pavlovic, All In Pav, exactly as it sounds on Twitter, A L L I N P A V. He actually played this event. And this Kaboom Poker woman then posted a screenshot of him being in the event. So what the hell is that about? Like, why is he entering? Like, it's a $25 event. Just stay out of it. I guess he wanted the value. Apparently, another male pro entered as well. I don't know what his name was, aside from this uh, Pavlovic guy. And then, in the response to Kaboom Poker... Uh, Pavlovic was uh, even kind of flippant to her and wasn't particularly apologetic or thinking that he had done anything wrong there. That wasn't the best look as well. His uh, initial response was uh, a picture of Sean Deeb in his drag outfit many years ago when Sean Deeb entered the uh, ladies event at the World Series of Poker before they had increased the buy-ins for males entering it. <laughs> so he wasn't taking her complaint seriously. He just basically posted he's doing what Sean Deeb's doing. So then Kaboom Poker responded back, I don't think he was repping the WSOP brand as an ambassador. And he paid 10 times the buy-in that women paid. Actually, that's wrong. He did not. Back then, they didn't have that rule. You know, I like you as a player and as a streamer, so nothing personal, but it just makes GG Poker look bad when you play this as an ambassador. I mean, she's right here that he shouldn't be playing this. So why would they even have this event at all? Why even have an event if GG Poker's software cannot prevent males from entering? Then don't have a women's championship. Just don't. That's all they have to do is just not have it. Or if they really want to have it, have a pop-up there or something saying, do not register for this event if, if you're male. And otherwise you'll be disqualified. Do you understand yes, no? Or how about just modifying the software? Now, it's possible that when people signed up, they didn't put whether they're male or female. That might be the issue is that when people made their accounts, they may not have indicated their gender. And if that's the case, then it's very hard to make a female-only event if the software cannot see who's male and female. But again, they could write something in there that makes it very clear to anyone registering that they must be female to enter and win this. Otherwise, they will be disqualified and not get their buy-in back. Do you understand? Yes, no. Or, you know, just don't have it. But why would you have a women's championship that is open to everybody and that you know is going to be mostly men playing. It's not like a few dudes are slipping in there. It's like most of the event is male. So why is it a women's championship? 
Like, like, why you you could call it a ninety year old's championship? You could call this the super super duper seniors event, ninety years old plus, and then let anyone enter. That doesn't mean it's the seniors event. It it just means you're calling it that. So why even call it a women's championship? So I don't think that this was something that was malicious. I don't think this Dave Byrne was trying to do something to mislead people. I do think she probably knew the truth about this and just chose not to put it out there and was hoping that just women would be excited about playing and that men wouldn't realize it and just wouldn't register. But the problem was, uh, of course, people see this and try to register and they get in and then word gets around and that's what happens. The, the thing is here that uh, this is probably just incompetence but it just makes them look bad again. Like, how can you hold a women's championship where it's going to be mostly men? Like, how could they possibly think that was a good idea? It just really makes me wonder who's making the decisions there. And this is the most successful site at the moment. And they're making boneheaded mistakes like this. Like, the Bulzerian thing's another weird thing. I understand why they signed him in the first place. And I understand why they didn't fire him from all the Cade stuff. But... He also didn't do what he said he would do. He really didn't promote them. He didn't complete this first uh, birthday challenge where someone gets to play him for $100,000 heads up. If they win a contest, the, the person who won it, who happened to be female, never got to play him. They never made that right, to my knowledge. And they had him at a party that he was contractually obligated to go to and he pretty much said that in an interview (laughs) instead of acting excited to be there like he's really been a crappy ambassador and i've talked about this before so then it appeared they didn't renew his contract or fired him somewhere in the middle of it and then they clarify that this wasn't true and they're still working with him like why don't they just get rid of him they don't need him he's not doing any good for them I'm sure barely anyone signed up for Gigi because he's an ambassador. I think they've gotten very poor return on that investment. Whereas someone like Negranu, I think, really has done a good job promoting Gigi and really has brought people to the site and really has been one of the reasons that they've continued to grow. So I think Negranu has been a great ambassador and Bilzerian's been a terrible ambassador. So why don't they get rid of him? Like I don't get some of these decisions on their part. So, just kind of a weird story. It's nothing really that scandalous, but just a women's poker championship where just about everybody there was male. Great. Just great, Gigi. Excellent job. All right, finally, we're going to do a COVID segment. And this is a WSOP-focused COVID segment. Why? Because... I'm at the WSOP, and that's an appropriate topic for right now. And one of our own Poker Fraud Alert members got COVID and played the World Series while he had COVID, albeit while not realizing it. So I think this is an appropriate segment, especially because when I was at one of the tables, the topic of COVID came up, and it surprised me how little accurate knowledge there was at the table about COVID. One person thought that COVID was over and that we had to worry about monkeypox. I told him he did not have to worry about monkeypox unless he has gay sex. (laughs) 
And this guy was not gay. He talked about how he was engaged to a woman a little before that. So this wasn't a gay guy worried about monkeypox. This was uh, just a straight dude. Thought that was the worry now. Others thought that the chips going around the table were what we would be uh, concerned about and that we would be getting COVID that way. I had to explain no. Others thought that COVID is pretty much over. Others thought that COVID was just a cold. Others thought that, yeah, it's more dangerous for old people, but it's uh, pretty much dangerous for everybody. There's a lot of just poor understanding of COVID. So we're going to do this segment about COVID and how it relates to the World Series of Poker. And rather just rant about this, what I'm going to do is a true and false segment. I'm going to make a statement, and then I'm going to tell you whether the statement is true or whether it's false. And I will pause before each one so you can think about the answer in your head before I reveal the answer. First one, COVID is mostly over and there's nothing much to worry about anymore. The WSOP removing their mask and vaccine mandates is proof that COVID is pretty much a non-issue at this point. True or false? Answer? False. COVID is not over. In fact, there are a lot more COVID infections now than there were a month ago. It's having a resurgence. The exact reason for this resurgence is unknown, but I believe it to be that almost nobody has had a vaccine in the past six months. You've had a small number of people getting their fourth shot, like I did, but the vast, vast majority of people either are unvaccinated or got their shot six or more months ago. I'm saying the last shot, even the booster, six or more months ago. So everything's worn off and everybody's vulnerable. And that is why we're seeing an uptick again, in my opinion. But we're definitely seeing an uptick again. So why is there no mask or vaccine mandate? Well, because uh, number one, it's not legally required and the WSOP does not want to do any more than what's legally required. And number two, because it's not going to do much good anyway. So the WSOP is taking the position, come here, take your own risk. We're not mandating anything. But that does not mean COVID is over. COVID is still going. And in fact, it may continue going for the rest of your life. It's not done. We're just more in the dealing with it phase. Next statement. Using lots of hand sanitizer, washing my hands a lot, and wearing a mask will mostly protect me from COVID at the World Series of Poker. Is that true or false? If you take those precautions, hand sanitizer, washing your hands, wearing a mask, will you be safe? That is false. The hand sanitizer and washing your hands might stop you from getting a cold might stop you from getting the flu it will not stop you from getting covid covid does not spread on surfaces say it again to yourself it may feel like it spreads on surfaces it does not spread on surfaces i told someone at the table they kind of laughed when i said this i told someone at the table 
it does not spread on surfaces. It's not that it's not the main way it transmits. It does not transmit on surfaces. So if I had COVID, I could cough on this chip, hand it to you. You could put this chip in your mouth and you would not get COVID. It's true. It doesn't feel like it, but you wouldn't because that's not how it transmits. It's through the air. So COVID does not transmit on surfaces. Therefore, the hand sanitizer and the hand washing, while a good idea for other reasons, will not help you with COVID. So all that cleaning and sanitizing you see for COVID reasons, useless. What about the mask? Well, if it's a surgical mask or better, it will help a little, but not a whole lot. And if it's a cloth mask, then it won't help you at all. So the masking has been very, very, very much overrated by the media, by the politicians, and even by the CDC. When Omicron really started spreading heavily in January, they had to walk back some of that and admit that cloth masks don't work, or before that they would never say that. But they felt they had to because it was spreading so rapidly and people had a false sense of security that if they put on their cloth mask, they were safe. I've been saying this all along, that the cloth mask never made sense, that I didn't believe it was working, and there was no credible study that they work. So the masking isn't completely useless, but it's not going to protect you all that much. So I think if you were sitting next to Jay Jammy and you were wearing a mask, uh, there's a good chance you got Omicron anyway. Next statement. Omicron isn't the only variant to worry about involving COVID. It's evolved past Omicron. We have a new variant and... We still have Delta and the original COVID to worry about. Is that true or false? Answer? False. Yes, they've all been false so far. Original Omicron is dead. Delta is dead. Omicron is very much alive. That is the variant now. That is not dead, and we do not have a new variant that is dominant now. We have sub-variants of Omicron, but they're still Omicron. They're just Omicron modified a little bit, but they are still Omicron. And, yeah, they're more contagious. They have a few things that are a little bit different, but they're still Omicron. It's still basically the same thing. So I've heard people say inaccurate things about Omicron, that it's either gone, been replaced by another variant, or that uh, that's not the only one to worry about. It's like people get it and go, oh, I don't know if it's Omicron. I don't know if the one I just got today is Omicron. It still could be Delta. I go, no, it's not Delta. Last year, it could have been Delta. Like in December, it could have been Delta or Omicron. Not anymore. Only Omicron now. Next statement. Unless I am very old or immunocompromised, Omicron isn't likely to hospitalize or kill me. Is that true or false? Answer? True. Yes. The first true statement that I have made here. Omicron is 10 times less deadly than Delta. For the most part, those who get Omicron, if they are not very old, and if they're not severely immunocompromised, and if they don't have major health problems already, like cancer or something along those lines, then you're going to be fine. It'll be unpleasant but you're probably not going to be hospitalized and you probably will not die. Even if you're like middle-aged, it's, it's not like original COVID and Delta where there was some outside concern that you'll be one of the people who runs bad and dies from it. 
And I knew people, not close friends, but I knew people who were in their 50s that otherwise were not anywhere near death that died from original COVID. So there were people who just got unlucky with original COVID that died in their 40s and 50s from it. So that was a real concern at the time. Omicron, much less. So unless you're very old or immunocompromised, you're probably just going to get fairly sick with Omicron, and then you'll get better. It's not likely to hospitalize or kill you. It's much less likely than the other variants. It is more mild, which is a good thing. But let's do a related one. Let's Let's make this statement. See if it's true or false. Omicron is just like a cold. If you're not worried about a cold, then you shouldn't worry about Omicron. Is that true or false? Yeah, that's false. Omicron has some symptoms in common with a cold. And like what Jay Jammy was reporting, he felt it kind of like an average cold. Well, that's good for him. And some people experience it that way. However, it is not a cold. Colds have been around long enough to where we know them very well. Colds, there is some variance in how you feel colds. In fact, I've had some colds that are pretty damn bad and really knocked me out. The worst cold I ever had was actually from the World Series of Poker in 2010, and it just knocked me out for 10 days. That was my worst cold of my life. I have other colds that I have a sore throat and a minor nasal congestion, and in two days, the whole thing's gone. So... I have a lot of stuff in between that. I have some very mild colds, some average colds, and some very bad colds. But they're all colds, and one thing I know is that they're going to go away and that I will have no long-term effects from them, I will never be hospitalized from them, and I will never die from them. So at no point is there a concern when I have a cold. "Uh Uh-oh, what if I die from this? What if I get unlucky? What if I end up in the hospital? What if I get lung damage? Like I don't worry about any of that stuff because I know it's going to go away and it's going to be like I never had it. Omicron is not that. Now, it's not as bad as the previous variants, but it is not a cold yet. It may eventually become a cold. It may actually become a cold because a cold can sometimes be a coronavirus. They're not all coronaviruses, but like 30% of colds are coronaviruses. The cold you get in the winter is usually a coronavirus. So COVID may eventually end up a coronavirus cold, but it is not there yet. Omicron may do permanent damage to you, even damage you don't know you have yet. Omicron may hospitalize or kill you, though, as I said, it's not all that likely if you're uh, not very old or immunocompromised. It can still do these things that colds cannot. Furthermore, if you get a cold, you are allowed to return to subsequent days of the World Series. People may not love it, but they're never going to disqualify you for having a cold. But if you have Omicron, they're not going to let you continue playing. Now, there is a question how they would verify that. But I'm saying that if you were to walk in and say, hey, I tested positive for Omicron, they won't let you keep playing. So Omicron is not a cold, even if it can feel like a cold in some people. And you do have to worry about it more than cold, of which you don't have to worry about at all. Okay, now what if you get Omicron? What about this statement? If it's been five days since symptoms, since symptoms appeared and my major symptoms are declining, then it's safe to return to play poker, even if I'm still testing positive. I'll read that again because it's kind of long. 
if it's been five days since symptoms appeared and my major symptoms are declining, it's safe to return to play poker even if it's, I'm still testing positive. Is that true or false? Can you come back and play poker at that point? True! So I bet Vanessa Cade will be happy to hear I'm saying this because I gave her a hard time for this in November and then it turned out my criticism was uh, mostly incorrect. Now I say mostly because she did choose to play an earlier day one than she had to. She should have played the very last day one. There was no reason not to because she had a choice to play any day one. And for some reason she chose to play like 1B or 1C when she could play 1F. So I didn't get that part. That it's just common courtesy to wait the maximum time to come back when it's all equivalent. But aside from that, there has been more learned since November when I had that little uh, debate about whether it was okay for her to come back as soon as she did. And from what has been studied since then, it turns out that, yeah, it was actually safe for her to return at that point. That if it has been five days since you first noticed symptoms... And if those symptoms have since declined to where everything seems to be improving, then it is safe to come back in public, including playing poker. Because you're probably not contagious after five days when major symptoms are either gone or mostly gone. And that's kind of true about all viruses and their contagiousness. That you tend to be most contagious right before you show symptoms and you continue to be contagious while you have major symptoms. But once major symptoms are severely declining, then you're really not contagious anymore. So it actually feels safer to be around someone like right before you're sick. Of course, you're not going to know you're going to be sick because you can't see the future, but you're much, 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 much more contagious like six hours before you feel symptoms of any virus, like a cold than you are at the end of your symptoms. At the end of your symptoms, you're really not very contagious anymore or contagious at all anymore. So the rule of thumb they always tell you to use with viruses is when you are feeling your major symptoms greatly declining, not just slightly better, but like noticeably better, that it's safe to go out again and uh, interact with people you're not going to get them sick. So it turns out that's the case with COVID as well. So if it's been five days and you're still experiencing major symptoms that haven't declined that much, then still stay away. But if it's all better or mostly better, then you can go out. It should be fine, including playing poker. Next, if I've been double vaccinated, I'm a lot safer from Omicron than unvaccinated people. Is that true or false? Uh-oh, it's false. Sorry, guys, if you got two shots back in 2021 and you stop there you might as well be unvaccinated at this point you're going to have very little protection against omicron because your vaccine has worn off your antibodies are gone and yeah your t-cells may have a little memory on how to fight the disease if you get it and that might help you somewhat with not being hospitalized but you probably wouldn't be anyway and it might make it a little milder for you, but for the most part, you're as vulnerable as people who were never vaccinated in the first place. And this makes anti-vaxxers very happy. Okay? They, they love to point out that people who got two shots are so vulnerable and it, the whole thing's useless. 
Well, it's not useless because if you got it during original COVID and Delta, then that helped you avoid getting those, which were much worse. But I will agree that today those are pretty useless after all this time. The vaccine does wear off pretty fast. And if you got your two shots a year ago, forget it. It's pretty much like you're unvaccinated. Okay, what about boosters, though? What about this statement? I got my third booster shot late last year. Let's say like November. Should I feel confident that I won't get Omicron? Is that true? Should you feel confident that you won't get Omicron if you got your booster late last year? I think you know the answer. False. Yep. You're better off than the people who only had two shots, but the truth is you're not very well protected. So these so-called breakthrough cases you are hearing about are mainly happening because it has been six or more months since most people got their booster. And in fact, a lot of people didn't even get the booster. So the vast, vast majority of Americans have not had any COVID vaccine in six or more months. That's why we're seeing a resurgence of Omicron. These people are not well protected. If you got your shot any time in 2021 and you have not had a shot since then, you are not well protected from Omicron at all. You can have uh, very minor protection against uh, severe infection and maybe a little protection against uh, moderate infection, but you're pretty much vulnerable to get it at this point, just like someone who's unvaccinated, even with a booster in late 2021. Sorry to break it to you. Okay, let's move on to the next one. I played poker yesterday with someone who tested positive for COVID. Let's say you played with Jay Jammy on uh, Friday. And now you know he has COVID. You were sitting right next to him. So does this mean you have to quarantine for five days? Is that true or false? That you have to quarantine for five days after playing poker for a long time next to someone who the next day tested positive for COVID, which meant they were very, very contagious then. Does that mean you have to quarantine now? No, you don't. It's false. The rules have changed involving this. You are not expected to quarantine unless you're actually showing symptoms. These standards changed because Omicron was so wildly contagious, especially back in January when people hadn't had it yet, so it was ripping through the country that if people had to hide out for five days just because they were exposed to somebody who had Omicron, well, then everyone would be hiding out because so many people were exposed to someone who had Omicron because it was spreading around so quickly. And because Omicron was also less serious, the standard changed to basically don't worry about it unless either one, there's someone who's very vulnerable. So if you know you know you were next to somebody for a while who had verified COVID. That doesn't mean go hug your 80-year-old grandma. Maybe maybe stay away from her. But other than that, it's uh, pretty uh, acceptable to go out in public. It's pretty acceptable to live life normally. And yes, acceptable to go play at the World Series of Poker. So until you actually see evidence you have it, You don't really have to change anything other than stay away from the most vulnerable who you wouldn't want to give it to because it could be much worse for them. The rationale behind this is, number one, 
it's so contagious that this will be too much of a burden if everybody has to quarantine for five days just because they were exposed. And, and number two, because it's so much less severe, the consequence of you transmitting this to others is much less than it used to be with the more severe variants. So don't worry so much if you happen to play with someone who has it. I mean, it's not great, but you can keep playing until you see evidence you have it. It's completely fine. What about previous COVID infections? So here's a statement that you might wonder about. A previous COVID infection in 2020 or 2021 will probably protect me from getting COVID today. Is that true or false? If you had COVID in 20 or 21, will you have protection today from Omicron? Wait a minute, that's contradictory. So which one is it? It's actually both. It's partially true. Natural immunity is a thing. Natural immunity is one of the things that the left and mainstream media got very wrong regarding COVID. They were so obsessed with with masking and vaccines that they did not want to accept the power of natural immunity, despite all the science in the past showing that natural immunity is something that's very powerful. And natural immunity is basically after you get a certain uh, virus, then you are immune to it. Now, there can be other variants of it that come later that will get you sick again. That's why you can keep getting colds. That's why you can keep getting flus. But you will never get the same cold twice or the same flu twice. So natural immunity has been known for a very long time. And for some reason, the left and the mainstream media were ignoring it like it just wasn't a thing. Well, turns out it is a thing. So natural immunity is actually better than the vaccine. And it seems to be longer lasting than than the vaccine, which kind of makes sense because the vaccine is like fake COVID and you having the disease is real COVID. So your body should be better at fighting the real thing after having already done it than fighting a fake version of it. That would make common sense, right? But it turns out, yes, that's true. However, Omicron is substantially different from the original COVID and Delta. In addition, just like the vaccine where it wears off, where the antibodies go away and where your body is not as good at fighting it, uh, that also occurs when you previously had actual COVID and it's been some time. Furthermore, if it's combined where it's been quite some time since you had COVID and it was a different variant, then that also can make you vulnerable. However, it doesn't mean that it's useless. So, for example, Norman Chad and Lon McCarran spent a lot of time together recording that video for Poker News introducing the WSOP at Paris, at uh, Ballas, Bally's and Paris. But Lon McCarran actually got COVID while he was doing it or had it uh, shortly before that. Lon McCarran did not get it, despite them spending a lot of time together. Now, remember, Lon McCarran did not have COVID before, to my knowledge, and Norman Chad did. 
So I thought that was very interesting that the one to get Omicron here was the one who did not previously have COVID. Now, Norman Chad did not have Omicron, but it is possible that Norman Chad has enough natural immunity, especially because he has long COVID. I don't know if he still does, but he did have long COVID symptoms. So his body may have been uh, fighting it in a way for an extended period of time. I don't know, but whatever it is, he may have some protection that saved him here. I know that's just anecdotal, but it has been shown on a much larger scale that having previous COVID does give you some protection against Omicron, even if it is not the same variant. And even if it's been some time. The last study showed that you have about uh, 56% protection from a Delta or original COVID infection if uh, if that was what you had you have 56% protection from Omicron on average so that's something I mean it's not bulletproof by any means but it's better than zero and it's better than what you'd have from the vaccine if that's all you got back in 2021 and you haven't gotten a booster since even if you had a third shot in 21 so natural immunity will help you somewhat, even if it was from a different variant. But let's talk about a more recent COVID infection. Let's say a COVID infection in 2022. So our final statement we're going to analyze here. A previous COVID infection in 2022 will protect me from COVID today at the World Series of Poker. Is that true or false? Can you... Let your hair down and not care because you know you're not going to get it because you've already had Omicron. Is that true? It is. What do you know? Score one for natural immunity. It has been found to be very rare to get Omicron twice, even these newer variants. There have been cases found of it happening, but it is not happening very often. You are considered very protected from all forms of Omicron, including the one infecting people today, if you had Omicron at any point in 2022. So even if you got it in January, you're in pretty good shape not to get the COVID that's going around the WSOP today. So if you've had COVID at any time in 22, then it's almost surely Omicron because Delta was mostly gone by the time January came around. So if you had COVID in 22, especially any time after the first week of January, it was almost definitely Omicron. Even in the first week of January, it was probably Omicron. Then you can tell yourself, I'm not going to get COVID at the World Series because people don't tend to get Omicron twice. If you have some immunity issues, then maybe. If you're immunocompromised, maybe. But if you're just a, a normal person with normal health, then you are very unlikely to get Omicron twice. And as I said, Omicron is still the form of COVID that is going around. So you can feel plenty safe. Don't have to mask. You don't have to do anything. Just come here and be yourself and pretend there's no COVID and you won't catch it. It's not a guarantee, but it's very likely. So that's something people also don't know, by the way. A lot of people think, oh, well, I got COVID back in January, but you know, it's a different variant now. No, you're pretty safe. Even if you were never vaccinated, even if you were vaccinated but haven't gotten a booster 
if you had Omicron, which basically means, have you had COVID in 2022? If the answer is yes, then you probably had Omicron. Then you are safe from Omicron. And you can play the World Series with peace of mind, at least from that standpoint. From the losing money standpoint, no. So that's all I have for you, both about World Series of Poker COVID and this show. I hope you enjoyed this special Vegas version of Poker Fraud Alert Radio, where I was the man on the ground there at the World Series of Poker, witnessing all of this for myself. If you'd like to follow my progress, you can uh, follow at Dandruff Poker. That's at Dandruff Poker, exactly as it sounds. You can read about my tournaments as each one plays through. I will update my chips and uh, things going on at the table, anything interesting that happens with me or others at the table or in the event. I try to make you feel like you're there as you read it. Uh, I usually tweet on average maybe uh, once an hour, so I'm not bombarding you with tweets, but I'm not one of these guys who like tweets their early day chip stack and then tweets at the end of the day 12 days later or 12 hours later. You know, I'm someone who does keep it pretty well updated. If something significant happens, then I let you know, whether early or late. And it's a separate account because not everybody wants to read all that crap. So this way, if you like following me on Twitter, you're not going to get bombarded with chip updates but if you do like reading the shipped updates, you can follow Dandruff Poker on Twitter. And that account is only used, by the way, for chip updates. I sometimes have people tweeting to Dandruff Poker about other things or messaging Dandruff Poker about other things. It may feel like that's an account to message me. It is not. You should message me at Todd Wittellis. That's T-O-D-D-W-I-T-T-E-L-E-S. That is the one I check most. You can also message Poker Fraud Alert. That one I check sometimes as well, but not as much. But Dandruff Poker goes dormant after the World Series is over and doesn't come back live until the next World Series, which means after I'm done with the 22 series, I will not be using that account again until at least uh, late May of 2023. That's it for the show. Did this one straight through, no breaks, no co-hosts, and I hope you enjoy it. If you see me around, you can feel free to come up to me. I had someone come up to me at uh, a break of the stud event who isn't even a listener. It was a friend of a listener who was uh, told to look for me and did and saw me. And he went up to me and we had a nice talk. And, you know, uh, just you don't have to feel weird about bothering me. You, you're, you're really not. I'm happy to have you come up and introduce yourself and... You can tell me you listen to the show and, you know, whatever. It, I appreciate that you want to listen to me. So if you'd like to come up and introduce yourself, that's completely fine. And I'd like to meet listeners. And uh, I'll let you know more about the hats on the next show, which right now is scheduled for June 15th. Trader Ruski's probably going to wake up and say... Oh, I'm going to get on the radio, and then I'm not going to be on here. I knew this wasn't going to be like a really long show. But I wanted to get it in. Hopefully we'll have the free roll fixed by next week. I'm going to be taking it over very soon. And once I do that, then this will all be 
my territory to manage. For the moment, it's still Belly Buster, so I'll see if he can fix the certificate as a final thing he does before handing it over to me probably in a few weeks. Apologize for no free roll this week, but... You know, that happens. We have one just about every week, but yeah, truthfully, we wouldn't have had a big field this week anyway because... The show started like 10.40 p.m., which is not a good time. It's Sunday night, you know. People gotta go to work on Monday. You know how it works. Not thrilled with my start to the World Series so far. Not only 0 for 2, but 0 for bad 2. <laughs> I uh, made it through 15% of the field in the first and about 30% of the field in the second. If I make it like through 60% of the field in the third, that's not going to be good enough either. Got to make it through at least 85% to get cash and... Never like starting off in the hole. I like just getting the cash out of the way right at the beginning, but couldn't even come close on these first two. I haven't done great in the Limit Hold'em tournaments since uh, 2014. I haven't had that many caches in them. I just have been breaking them for some reason. Even when starting off very well, it just hasn't run very well. In these Limit tournaments, you just have to catch cards, and I just wasn't. So hopefully, one of these this year will be the difference maker. You just need one. If I get one really deep run with a nice cash, if I brick everything else, you know, I'll be okay with that. Alright, see you guys on the 15th. Shalom. Shalom.